And good seeing you, Ken. That was fun. Yes, that was that was fun. We recorded in person for the first time of this podcast. That's true. We did. Yeah. Should that's be more. Two and a half. Yeah, that's also why the listener is going to notice that this this episode is almost three hours. <laughs> Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I'm back, back in Fredericton, New Brunswick, from the CAA meeting in member two, Cape Breton. And I'm joined, as always, by Ken Holyoke, who is not in a Chili's at the Calgary airport. He made it back all in one piece to Lethbridge. How are you, Ken? Not too bad. I, uh, yeah, I, I made it, I, I skipped the chilies this time, actually. I went to the WestJet Lounge, the, uh, which, was, the, the, which was quite nice. But, well, yeah, I mean, how many, but they only have one of them. It's not like they have four WestJet lounges in Calgary, or is it, or is it that prosperous? No, no, I think, I think there's just one um, that uh, it's not as, uh, it's not as spread out as the chilies selection is. And, there, and there's a total lack of chilies at Pearson which uh, oh, wow. you know yeah huh well i mean that that shows you how toronto's going um <laughs> so uh we were uh those of you that follow us on instagram will know that we were at the 55th canadian archaeological association meeting um over the weekend and end of last week and that was the first canadian archaeological association meeting that was ever held on a first nations reserve and so it was at member two and uh, it was great. They did a nice job, had a good meeting, uh, sort of moving to have it on a First Nations Reserve. And there was uh, lots of opportunities for conversation about collaborative archaeology, which I certainly enjoyed. Um, what were some of and, your and, big take? And yeah, it okay. was great. Um, there was a lot of community participation, um, uh, Mi'kmaq community members, as well as uh, chiefs. Um, they had uh, 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 jingle dancers and, um, and drumming. For both the opening ceremony and the uh, and the banquet on Friday night, which was the Maui Omi, um, and the uh, the gentleman who was the MC for the weekend, uh, Jeff Ward, who's a, a member of uh, the Sons of Member Two, they're a, a drumming band, um, uh, was uh, put on a great show. He was uh, he was pretty funny. Had the had you know and and had a connection to archaeology too. He um, he and his family had participated in or his mother at least had participated in excavations at the Augustine Mound um, back in the seventies. So. Yeah, and um, and actually, the band Sons of Member Two, I understand, is is fairly acclaimed, and uh, and they were great. Yeah, he said, uh, and um, he said that they had a Juno nomination or something. It was something like that. Um, They've been around for a long time, and I, I guess they on one of the days we were there, they had like four gigs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, pretty remarkable. And um, one of the uh, the facilities quite nice too that Member Two um, is running. Yeah, uh, has a heritage park, which is uh, great, and, and a really interesting. So have a they have a private collection that was donated to them. Some really interesting archaeological objects there. Um, uh, uh, the Donald Marshall's fishing equipment was there, which is really fascinating. Um, so you know, kind of a, a historical moment in Canadian um, in Indigenous um, Indigenous rights in uh, in Canada it was the Marshall decision, where um, basically the Supreme Court actually determined that um, the treaties of peace and friendship signed with um, Wabanaki groups in, in the uh, 18th century 
um, were upheld as um, as enshrining uh, indigenous rights to um, uh, access to things like fisheries. Um, so. Um, uh, really kind of an interesting historical document. And the, and the community of member two is sort of interesting from a historical perspective in that, um, uh, you know, you talk to non-Indigenous community members in Sydney now, and they talk about how Ida Cabby, who basically said that, you know, member two is essentially the driving economic force in the city right now. Um, whereas you look back 100 years ago, and um, the reserve was actually forced to move out of Sydney. Um, they, the community was actually closer to what present day Sydney is um, and uh, uh, were essentially booted out for economic development in the city itself and, and relocated up to the present day location of the member two um, First Nation. So, yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, fantastic facility and uh, fantastic food, actually, too. Yeah. Uh, like across sort of the board. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of extraordinarily good hotel food, which is weird. And yeah. Um, couple of at a, I think the restaurant is called Kijus, which you're going to hear Kijus because we actually recorded <laughs> um, a fair bit of the podcast one evening uh, in Kijus. Um, but you know other places the, the governor's pub was great. Um, there's a little hole in the wall chicken place called Member Two Chicken at a store on the reserve, <laughs> yeah. which was uh, mysteriously delicious. Yeah, not not just for the chicken. I got a a, a haddock sandwich there that was uh, just a fantastic lunch. So that's what I had too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 uh, and great service too. They uh, they felt bad that the the sandwiches took so long. Uh, we both got free fries with our meal. Yeah, and they actually hadn't taken that long. Um, yeah, <laughs> but no, it's fantastic. Uh, and you know, of course, the old triangle was good too. Um, yeah. But. Uh, so that probably transitions over to our theme, which is that this conference was a lot of fun. We all drove up to, or many of us drove up together in a gigantic rented Mercedes van from Fredericton. So it was great to catch up with uh, Ken and other people in the, in the uh, well, what we ended up calling the Smith-Wittenberg limo. And that was because Dave Black uh, won or was awarded the, the Smith-Wittenberg award this year. And so um, the Smith-Wittenberg award, it's, the, it's kind of the lifetime achievement award for Canadian archeology. span um, it's and there's only I believe Dave is like the 32nd person ever to be awarded it. Um, they're not necessarily yeah, they've been awarded since the 70s, but they're not necessarily awarded every year. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and it's uh, and there's sort of criteria that um, uh, a candidate needs to sort of enshrine, and so that they have to have significantly advanced the training and practice of archaeologists. Um, and or made exceptional research contributions and or advanced method and theory in some significant way. And, and uh, you know, uh, certainly Dave um, embodies every bit of that. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's been it's looking at the chart back here. It has been awarded every year except for 2020. Um Back, back to, in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't always awarded, I don't think, right? Yeah, so back to 2007, it's been awarded every year except for, it looks like, 2020. In some years, there's actually been multiple recipients. Um, uh, but then, but the first award was until 1978, went to Charles Borden, um, which is, you know, fitting. Um, and then uh, there wasn't another one until 1984, uh, and then skips in a, again a few years till 1992 and kind of patchy throughout the 90s, but has been more regular since then. Yeah. Um, so a really great way to, um, to recognize, um, you know, uh, contributions to the, to the discipline and, and, uh, um, and to practice more generally. I agree. Yeah. And then some real luminaries on that list that Dave joins. And so we just couldn't be happier about it. Um, Ken and I are going to keep this introduction, um, relatively brief because what we're going to try to do now 
is shift over to uh, live footage. And I give you kind of a brief outline of, of how this works, I think, um, which is that the first night, many of us were in Fredericton and we met up at the old uh, kind of classic watering hole for archaeologists here in town, the Luna Rogue downtown. And so you're going to hear interviews from the Luna Rogue. That'll be the first kind of chunk of interviews. The next chunk of interviews are actually going to be at the CAA meeting proper at uh, the bar at Kiju's. And so you may be thinking, listener, oh, I didn't know acoustics were no uh, bars are known for their acoustic <laughs> qualities. And you would be correct. We weren't there for their acoustic qualities. We were, we were there for uh, for other qualities that bars have, um, like nachos yeah. and uh, beer. Yeah. And so sub it, is, it would be yeah it'd be sub studio quality I think would be the uh, a, a kind remark on it yeah I think we're gonna use the phrase um, ambiance <laughs> it lacks if listen, that yeah if you listen to the background in the Kiju uh, episode uh, part of it you you might catch uh, uh, some good old maritime kitchen music going on you may yeah. You may. That episode may also be um, guest starring a somewhat confused waitress who was wondering why we had handed her some stickers and a large tip and then put a microphone on the table. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, and we're going to introduce each person as they um, as they present in the in the interview itself. And what we will try to do is put in the show notes connections to. I don't know, should we list their names and try to connect to their affiliations or companies? Is that what we should do? Yeah, yeah, I think names and affiliations sure. probably makes the most sense. Great. Yeah. Um, and so we apologize in advance if at any points the audio is really janky. We're doing the best we can um, to try to get that clean. And by we, I mean Ken, um, uh, who, who who did this largely um, at the airport, I think. And so um, the other program we noticed is just that we will be not on... This is sort of the fortnightly. We're going to take yeah. a week off and then we'll be back about a fortnight from Friday, last Friday. Yeah, so our, our next episode uh, will will be recorded the night of the 18th and so we'll get posted on the 19th. So uh, this will come out. We don't want to we don't want to we don't want to be too firm about that sometime around the 19th. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, pro we're scheduled right now to record next on the 18th of May. Um, and so the, the episode will come out shortly after that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, schedule may move around. Gabe and I are both sort of in the post, um, uh, semester mode. Uh, Gabe is, is in the midst of gearing up for field work, um, and field season work. And, and I'm kind of writing and, and, and doing lab work over the next little while. And so, um, we'll be coordinating schedules. We may even get a, I guess we should get a field school episode at some point, eh? A field school episode. Yeah. Yeah. Live um, and field. we... Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we, we're going to miss the opportunity to have a really well-timed episode. Uh, we had we had recorded at the at the Rogue uh, on uh, last Tuesday, I believe, and uh, and I had I had been overly ambitious, thinking I could get all that uh, edited and posted by by Thursday for May the fourth, and uh, and have a, a, a you know a Star Wars themed episode called Lunar Rogue One. Um, that. Uh... <laughs> Nobody thought that was as funny as I did. I just, I, I was, I was uh, going to be excited about that. The, uh, no, no, we, we all thought it was funny. Don't worry. Um, but no, that would have been ambitious in the back of the, the Smith Wittenberg uh, limo. The Smith Wittenberg limo that was moving so fast, we actually got a warning ticket for speeding. Um, 
which first time I've been pulled over in a long time. Um, we just explained that uh, we had to get the Smith-Wittenberg winner down to the South Shore for a very, very important meeting. And could they, <laughs> could they please let us keep going? Um, yeah. All right. So I, I guess um, what we're doing is uh, we'll see you in a fortnight, listener, and we'll we'll let you listen to us uh, at the CA now. And we really thank all the guests we saw. It was great to see everyone. And um, thanks everyone who was willing to to be a part of the CAA podcast. And for folks we didn't catch this time to get you on air, we're looking forward to tracking you down here at some point to get you on a podcast. Um, and and we do have a listener mail, but I think maybe we'll um, we'll save this one. It's an interesting comment from uh, a colleague of ours that we saw at the um, at the meeting uh last week uh we'll, we'll save this we'll save this listener mail for next week i think it's a it's a good thing to tie in with um it might be i haven't had a chance to read it, it might be hakuna errata so Uh-oh. okay I think I, I think I won't spring it on ourselves right now and, and yeah, yeah, uh, no. we'll, we'll save it for later sounds uh, good so thank you listener enjoy the show and um we will talk to you within the next fortnight see you later listener how's that that's good great we could can we turn up the what does that do anything? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what gain is. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. We are live from the Luna Road in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And I'm joined as I am every week by Ken Holyoke, who this time is also in the Luna Road in Fredericton. How are you, Ken? Very best. We are on day minus one of the CAA conference. We are. And uh, we're happy to be sitting here in the Luna Road with some of our dearest friends and archaeological mentors. We have Emily Hubert, Dave Black. Darcy is trying Josh to escape Gavard. right now. But- <laughs> Microphone yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they couldn't. Um, and so, uh, this USB cable is long enough to reach the whole table, Darcy. Yeah, yeah. This is good now. Yeah, and Darcy's trying to leave because he doesn't want his wife to know that when he says he's going to the office. We actually found him here. <laughs> Remarkable, but they, they, yeah. So, Trevor, um, what are you looking forward to at this uh, this year's CA? Uh, mostly, I think uh, your guys' reception, to be quite honest. And, and that's the favorite honor of David Black. It's over a Friday uh, and a Saturday. Yeah, two-day two day celebration. It's the only way to celebrate Dave, right? It's true. And you're presenting in that session, I understand? Yeah, I got two papers. I one on Friday and one on Saturday. Friday's paper is a paper about David, actually, and looking at some of David's research over the years. And then on uh, Saturday, we're well, the three of us are giving a paper together, I guess, uh, on our bibliography project, New Brunswick Bibliography. Great. New and Brunswick Archaeological Bibliography project, cool. I guess I should say. And there, there are stickers. At this point, some of our listeners will have gotten stickers from this, this true. project. It's true. And so um, tell us about the first paper, the one you're doing about Dave. Uh, so it's uh, a bio-bibliographic review. So uh, it's kind of spun out of the uh, bibliography project. And the idea is that it's, uh, it's somewhat of a bio a biographical review using bibliography, using research, uh, using David's published research to kind of tell a, a story about his contributions. Great. To archaeology in, in the region. Cool. And we should walk you back just a little bit. So um, what is the bibliography project? The three of us are involved in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a project uh, that's been gestating for a number of years now. We can use that word. No, I Yellow lined paper. Get the in tech class at UNB thirteen years before Dave and I figured out the cloud computing probably more effective way to documenting things than posting successive yellow sheets on the board outside of the lab. 
Yeah, so the listener, Ken and I shared an office between uh, 2009 and 11, I think. The listener also can't see that Ken is checking the hockey scores right now here in the Lunar Room. He's, he's actually sweating over this Leafs game. Well, I mean, it is the first time in his adult life that the Leafs have made it to the second round. Yeah, as an American, I'm completely unconcerned with this, and I'm able to maintain a laser-like focus on the job at hand while all the Canadians get nervous around me. But if it was the baseball playoffs, then... Gabe's attention might be elsewhere. That's it would, I'll, despite my increasingly dismissiveness of the professional <laughs> game. But <laughs> it's true. Yes, it's true. Are they really playing for it? Florida Panthers. Yeah, Florida's legendary for its hockey. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they've got a special play they've just put on, folks. It's called the Stand Your Ground. It's it's <laughs> and so your your first your first paper is uh, using bibliography to look at uh, Dave Black's contributions to New Brunswick archaeology. Yes, that's right. Am I right that, that Dave, I think Dave in the Billy Ivory has the biggest sort of um, yeah, he does. hours circle? What's it called? Uh, I don't remember what, what the, the actual term is there, but yeah, it'd be uh, definitely the largest uh, uh, volume of material, I would say, for yeah. sure, yeah. So at least by, by some measure, sort of the most influential New Brunswick archaeologist? I would say that's uh, a fair assessment, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so Gabe is an academic child of Dave's. I'm what Archie Matson would refer to as a academic brand chosen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what that means is you were his undergraduate and I was his no, graduate? So How does that work? My graduate supervisor supervised by Dave. So I uh, worked with Susan Blair and uh, Sue was supervised by Dave and she did her round. That's right. Yeah. Both a, a protege and, uh, and an academic. Right. Uh, well, that's pretty exciting. Gabe and I are first cousins once we meet. Sounds quite incestuous. Yeah. Well, well the, the, th the thing about it, too, is that is that uh, Dave is a rare supervisor who, who uses uh, Inuit-style uh, kinship for figuring these things out. So it's actually, we need to diagram this, and we can't do that for it's the listener. Yeah. 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 So, and what's your second paper about, Kevin? Uh, our bibliography project. Yeah. Uh, also about our bibliography project. Yeah. Well, the full, the full, about the full bibliography. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, the results of some of the research we did associated with that and kind of what the next steps in that are um, and, uh, you know, digitizing things and sort of making uh, information more accessible, right? I mean, right. that's kind of what we all kind of, I think, set out to do with this project was to identify what information was out there, but then find ways to make it more accessible to researchers and, and others and whatnot, so... Right. So that's a bit of a sneak preview for the bibliography, which is going to be published by Gaspar Press and is going to come out yeah. in, uh, in the fall. Yeah, we think late fall, late fall probably October or November of this year. Cool. Um, 2023. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, we'll make exactly. a great Christmas gift. Uh, yeah. Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever you want. They are right now. They are, yeah. And, yeah. They do put together a very nice printed volume. So great. It will look nice. Anything you're excited? Oh, sorry, I interrupt. I was just going to say, it'll look really nice on the bookshelf with the embossed lettering. So. It will, yeah. The, um, uh, anything you're pretty excited to check out Remember Member Two? I'm just, I'm actually really excited just to check out the community. I've never been down there. I've driven through Sydney a couple of times on my way to Newfoundland, but I've never really uh, spent a lot of time in Cape Breton uh, other than doing some field work in the National Park and... Uh, uh, avoiding coyotes and uh, all that fun stuff. But yeah, I'm just really excited to check out the community and, and see what it has to offer. That's excellent. And so um, that was Trevor Dow. And Trevor, uh, tell us about your affiliations here. Who do you, who do you work well, for? Yeah, Where do you go so to I, <laughs> I work for Ecofor Consulting uh, for the last couple of years now. 
uh, and uh, I uh, also a sessional instructor or academic instructor at UMB, um, where I teach intro uh, to archaeology, and uh, I'm also a graduate student there. So yeah. That's me. Right. Man of many hats, Trevor Dow. Man of many hats. Um, and we will see you tomorrow because you are riding to member two with us. But we appreciate you chiming in with us. You're potentially part, driving me down. Part yeah. two of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Unfiltered. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll see you in, uh, in uh, member two. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Trevor. So we're joined here by Josh Cummings. And uh, oh, yes. Well, so the way we do this, Josh, is we just run the thing all the time, and then Ken edits it aggressively. Yeah. It's just like a master's thesis in that regard. <laughs> so, what so we're just going to ask you about what you're presenting um, in Dave's session. Yeah. So I'm presenting my research on Falls Island. Okay. Which is in Maine, right? In Maine and Falls Island. a little bit closer to that. And essentially, what happened was. Avocational archaeologists collected from sites in the 20th century, but nothing was ever done with these collections. And they went to the Robert S. Peabody Institute. And now it's my job to report these sites. Awesome. Cool. And so you've, you've done a lot of work. Uh, you've identified a few of the places they probably identified sites. And you've, uh, how old are some of these sites are pretty old, right? Yes. There's one site that we believe is from the late maritime archaic period. Cool. And uh, all the way up to the, to the late woodlands. Excellent. And there's been some material in there that Ken's interested in. I think a, a few pieces of washed oak cherry, right? My favorite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ken looked a little excited at one of those pictures. Yes, there is. The uh, Yeah, so it's right up to the... And, um, this, it's tied into the Quadi region, one of the places Dave worked. You're presenting uh, in honor Dave Black. Yes. Yep. Just, and just across the border from where they, all Dave's uh, research was. Absolutely. Yeah. And a nice little fit there too. Because he works on works on islands, right? <laughs> Made the Quad Region Islands good. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's also part of your master's thesis. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. It. I do. I work for Chelsea Powell Patch at Colbert Consultant. Excellent. Cool. All sorts of projects I'm getting in the summer. Oh yeah. Field season they had. It is. I've read lots about like heard lots of people that. Um, the same thing out in Alberta right now. It, uh, it's basically like everyone has already fired all the staff so that nobody else can try to hire those staff because they're still <laughs> trying to get everybody done that they've been trying to do for the last three years, basically. Yep. It's, it's going to be a busy field season, yes. Yeah, it might be the next decade of busy field seasons if the, <laughs> if the news is to be believed. Well, that's great, Josh. Uh, and you're also a grad student, you and me. I am. I work with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. But yeah, don't think it's Ken. I know you need guys to inside a lap bridge, but uh, this one's stuck with us. So thanks very much, Josh. You're welcome. And uh, we appreciate being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we're here. We're here still at the Lunar Rogue, uh, hours later. And we're, we're joined by uh, by Dave Black, a dear mentor and friend to uh, to both Ken and I. And we thought it would be fitting. We're gonna we're gonna have other hits with uh, with Dave this uh, this weekend. But we thought we would ask about um, his start in New Brunswick archaeology. And so, Dave, what was your first season here? The first season I was here, I worked on um, Shell Midden site on uh, Partridge Island. Okay. So, so the first season I worked here, I worked on a Shell Midden site on Partridge Island, which is a little island off the northeast coast of Deer Island in the Quadi region. And that was my introduction to New Brunswick. It was my introduction to the Quadi region. And um, it was completely a fluke. I went, <laughs> I went, I did my undergraduate degree at Simon Fraser. I came back to Ontario and did and enrolled in a master's program at McMaster. 
thinking that I would continue to do West Coast research because there was somebody there who was supervising students you, doing West Coast research. And you worked at NAMU with Roy Carlson. That's right. I, yeah. worked, I was on a field school at NAMU with Roy Carlson, which is a whole different story that we shouldn't get sidetracked on here. Okay. <laughs> So well, let's go off of that from last week. We were going to the Cannes Film Festival. We've submitted the film <laughs> that they made from NAMU to Cannes as well. And so we expect that to be there as well. <laughs> right. So, um, so what happened was when I got to McMaster, I met two students from New Brunswick there, uh, um, Jennifer Bishop and um, David Christensen. And they were actually both from Nova Scotia, but they were doing New Brunswick research in part at the time. And because I got hooked up with them, I got hooked up with Chris Turnbull, who was provincial archaeologist here. I ended up doing a project here. Then I ended up doing a PhD here. Then I ended up having a career here. That's the short start. Fantastic. And um, would you say these are the best shell heaps in the world? <laughs> they are absolutely the most amazing shell heaps in the world. They absolutely are. Fantastic. Although I have to qualify that. I haven't seen the ones in North Africa, so I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. They're old anyway. Yeah, funny. right. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they're all limpet shells, which is way cool. Oh, that is that is pretty cool. And so the, the listener, we're doing uh, papers in honor of Dave Black this weekend. So there'll be more uh, Dave Black's material um, as the as the weekend unfolds, we think. But we're not, uh, not going to tire him out tonight at the row. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, okay. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dave. And yeah. uh, it's great that we've had your voice from email before, but we've never had your voice live uh, here from the Lunar Rogue in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So thanks very much, Dave. And we're looking forward to the, the weekend with you. Yep. I'm looking forward to it, too. It's going to be cool. <laughs> thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. No, that was... 93. Yeah, 93. That was... Bob Ozin did the... Yeah, that was Bob. No, no, Tony, Tony Cook was a, a young guy from uh, Back Bay. He was using his uncle's 16-foot uh, wooden boat with a great big outboard on the back of it. It was a great boat. It was, it was yes, he, he was our best friend because we gave him a whole bunch of money to do boat work for us that summer. The only time he really was irked at us was we called him in the middle of a, uh, well, we actually didn't call him because it was pre-cell phone. We called somebody in Back Bay to go get him to go take somebody off the island at like nine o'clock at night. And he was in the middle of a baseball game. Don't <laughs> really do really We came out with this baseball uniform still on. <laughs> my memory. Who's the guy who went to grad school in Newfoundland and Labrador who worked with us? Don Holly. That was Don Holly's first archaeology experience, too. Yes. He and Darcy had shared a tent. Just so you know. So we are joined by Darcy Dignam. And uh, Darcy, what company do you work for these days? Uh, the name of the company I work for now is called WSP. Okay. And, and the reason we're laughing is because the company has gone through a few different iterations since I worked for Darcy and learned a lot about cultural resource management when it was AMEC. AMIC. Yeah. Then it was AMIC Foster Wheeler, and then it was Wood, and now it's WSP. Right. Yeah. I, I also worked for Darcy in my first year of CRM at AMIC at the time. So I like to say I taught these guys everything they know, except for that would be a total lie. Oh, I, I don't know. I think you know, I, took, I got a, I taught a lot that summer. Yeah. 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 That, that was a great book. I learned a lot. Yeah. They yeah. learned how to survive uh, in 35 degree weather after eating a bucket of chicken from KFC. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and for the American audience, KFC, it stands for the same thing here that it does there, but 35 is a lot warmer than it is there. <laughs> so, the KFC is the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, Daisy, how did you get in archaeology? Well, it's funny. I was I was doing my master's degree in anthropology, and he's lost. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> and it just so happened that a Dr. David Black uh, said asked me if I wanted to volunteer on a dig for him. I had no inclination towards archaeology at that time, but I said, "Yeah, that sounds like fun." So we went to the Bliss Islands, and I volunteered along with Sue Blair and Don Hawley, who have gone on to do great things. And uh, I never looked back. I just I oh. fell in love with archaeology, even though it was the stormiest <laughs> week ever. It was horrible camping. We had one shower a week. It was a disaster, but I couldn't have loved it more. Oh, that's great. That's and, uh, and so you were working on which island or the it was, different island? It was Bliss. The weird site. Oh, it's a classic. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, no wonder that so did the entire field school of professional archaeologist. You mentioned you, well, <laughs> Sue, and Don. So, well, you, well, are you, you the guy that's flexing uh, in in the short shorts and that uh, wide angle? Shot? I don't that's think the, so. No? <laughs> that's Dave, I think. <laughs> yeah, short shorts came a little later, yeah. didn't they? I don't know. Yeah. And so then you um, you translate that career into a cultural research management career. That's or, correct, and I've been doing that for about twenty years or so. And great. Uh, with one company, I started my own, but then I moved into this big company, and uh, so and I've worked with a lot of the folks in New Brunswick archaeology yeah. through that time period, um, as as we mentioned with uh, both Gabe and Ken, uh, but also with Trevor Dow and just about everybody else. So yeah, so Dave got my start in the business, and it's not exactly what he was doing, but I think there's still room for CRM archaeology and. And that's what I do. <laughs> that's great. And so, um, could you just, just in case we've got a listener who's like just tuning in, we know some people dipping out. Uh, what is what is CRM? CRM is, is cultural resource management archaeology, as opposed to academic. And so, basically, what we do is, if you know you're putting in a bridge somewhere, or a or a building, or a road, uh, it's part of an environmental impact assessment. Is the archaeological program? And it didn't used to be so. This is something that got more and more uh, to the point or more uh, culturally uh, required since the 80s. And so that's really sort of when I started getting into it was the late 80s, early 90s. And now it's a must. It's okay. very important. And the frequent listener will remember we've talked a few times about the Gem St. Crossing site, which was excavated as a result of the Cultural Resource Management Project. And Darcy was one of the field directors there, too, weren't you? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Sue, Sue Blair was the primary, and I was one of the directors as well. And so, yeah, that was the first big project I ever worked on in 1996. Yes. Yeah, with the fourth Gump of New Brunswick Archaeology. Yeah. We've been there for just for every, every event in New Brunswick Archaeology. Run, Darcy, run. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks very much, Darcy. And we're going to have to get you back on when we talk about our... We'll probably do a CRM episode, I imagine, here at some yeah, point. Yeah, without a doubt. And we'll, we'll get you on here to talk shop about some of that. And, Maybe um, season two. Yeah, and also probably when we do historical archaeology. Darcy's, uh, Darcy is a, a ceramics enthusiast, but not the kind that we think of often. Uh, more into the, the sorts that uh, hang out. Maybe in your grandmother's granite cabinets and these sorts of things. But also if you're on archaeological sites. So. Yes, yeah. The, transfer uh, printed blue. Yeah, yeah. Painted blue. <laughs> oh, you guys are making fun of it. 
Historical archaeology is awesome. So here's a hot topic. Is it W-R-E or R-W-E? W-R-E. There you go. White and fine earthenware. Pulling their hair out right now. They hate that. Okay. Find white earthenware. Not white refined. White refined earthenware, sorry. Coarse red earthenware. If this Darcy's seen it, though. Yeah, yeah. Don't even get him started on the buckleware. Yeah. Well, thank you, Darcy. We appreciate the podcast. Thank you. Hey, guys. Nice to see you. Hey, good to see you, too. Thanks. Which which um, setting do you have? It's turning on. It's collecting us globally. Well, your gain is way lower than mine. Maybe that's why I sound echoey. I don't know how to work this thing. I might have also gotten adjusted in my backpack. Oh. <laughs> Still don't know what gain is. Well, uh, welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. Ken and I are here uh, on day one in member two, and uh, we. Uh, We've. Uh, what, what did you? Uh, what did you check out for sizes today, Ken? So an interesting session on data sovereignty, uh, and then popped over to the uh, session on digital tools in archaeology. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, uh, the first one. That's Lisa Hodges' outfit out of uh, Western, right? Yes. And I'm doing work up uh, with up north with the Inuit. Cool. Uh, second one was a series of papers in a session hosted by Cornwallsey. That's great, yeah. Out of uh, well, formerly of our classmate at University of New Brunswick. Yeah, great. Um, no, and it's um, it's been a better turnout than I would have expected, considering the isolated location. And then um, last night, a uh, very lovely opening ceremony. It was the fifty. 50- Jesus Christ! <laughs> the listener can't tell. Right yeah, now, yeah. But uh, Gabe and I have edited this about twelve times already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one of many. <laughs> this is the fifty-fifth. Canadian Archaeological Association annual meeting, and it's the first one being held on First Nations Reserve. Yeah. Uh, so, Member Two First Nation is a Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq nation, uh, and they and the uh, Association of Mi'kmaq Chiefs uh, are uh, co-hosting the event uh, along with the CAAs, and uh, kindly invited us to their traditional territory and uh, and in this beautiful facility here on Member Two First Nation. Yeah, and the listener uh, may hear in the background that in this beautiful facility we are we are sitting in a bar, um, and we expect at any moment um, that the person singing is going to convert to uh, singing the Canadian Railroad trilogy or some similar <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot uh, cover in honor of the recently departed Gordon Meredith Lightfoot. That's middle name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amy Fox told me that actually. I didn't realize, and then I repeated it uh, out of disbelief. I assume that his his parents were just like. Either it's Gordon Meredith or it's Meredith Gordon. So <laughs> he was old enough. I think it was before ultrasound when they <laughs> inject that before they come out. Um, and so uh, we've uh, been catching up with colleagues, which has been nice. Yep. And we are going to further catch up with colleagues uh, on air here, actually, shortly. We're going to be doing a, a couple of uh, hit pieces, a couple of hits, I guess, yep. with, um, pieces, yeah. with their colleagues. Yeah. And we're going to pause this while we make our drink order. And then tomorrow, we're gonna have. Uh, what, what are you checking out tomorrow? And there's, there's your your sessions tomorrow are pretty complicated. Yeah, so I, I've got a bit of a busy day. Um, in the morning, I think uh, I'll be doing a little bit of administrative work, making sure that the uh, play button works on the panel discussion that I'm co-hosting with some colleagues. Uh, so uh, I am the chair of the advocacy committee for the Canadian Archaeological Association along with my peers on the board, uh, or on the, the advocacy committee, uh, Beatrice Fletcher, who's a post uh, PhD candidate at Master, 
uh, Marissa Barris, who is now the executive director of iPhone Wells Canada, and Stephen Dorland, who is an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University. We're hosting a hybrid session, uh, a panel discussion on professionalization in uh, archaeology and heritage related disciplines. So we've got panelists from across uh, heritage sectors uh, and across Canada, actually, uh, tuning in virtually and also participating in person. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I am co-hosting <laughs> the, uh, uh, the session uh, papers in honor of David W. Black, um, and I have pushed all of the administrative duties over on to uh, my co-host, Gabe Reinick. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so, so the morning, I think I'll probably be figuring out how the Zoom is going to work for the uh, webinar. Great. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, panicking until about one o'clock and everything crashes around me. Yeah. And, uh, presenting a paper. Uh, halfway through the afternoon. Yeah, just another day. And um, so what's the advocacy committee do, Ken? Uh, so uh, basically, we are uh, a body within the Canadian Association that um, if you are an archaeologist working or a member of the public and you have some concerns about um, something going on in archaeology or something you're seeing, you're uh, more than welcome to reach out to us. Uh, we tend to like write letters of support for um, advocacy, other advocacy groups. Um, support for archaeologists if they are advocate, advocating for particular things. Sometimes these are ethical uh, challenges that they're dealing with. Sometimes they are actual threats to archaeological sites. So we dealt with um, the federal government last year uh, in a site in uh, outside of the Ottawa Valley, um, which was threatened by development. And a colleague of ours had reached out to see if we could um, support him in providing some uh, letter to the federal minister of heritage. And so uh, we actually had some success with that. And so we tend to be somewhat reactionary, but uh, part of the reason that we developed this panel discussion is to actually be more active in our advocacy to the membership of the Canadian Logical Association. Um, and so we are putting on this professionalization series, and this is the first of what we hope will be multiple events over the next uh, year, basically, calendar year leading up to next year's series. Fantastic. And so are you still... Um... Are you, are you looking for people to be involved in the advocacy committee? Yeah, we actually have two openings right now. Um, one of them would be ideal for a student to join us. Uh, so if you are a current graduate student, that'd be a fantastic opportunity for you uh, to give us some idea of what some of the issues are facing student archaeologists right now. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, if you are uh, a member of the Canadian Archaeological Association and interested in volunteering about one hour every two months. Uh, <laughs> uh, we would we would love to have you on board, and uh, I think we can all work together on doing some some really great stuff. The uh, and so Ken, um, you 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 probably a little bit more, maybe a lot more involved in uh, service to professional organizations than than most of us. Um, I'm just curious. I, I'm just thinking about this as as you were discussing that. What do you think the What's been your relationship, I guess, with service to the archaeological community would be one thing I wonder. And then what do you think it's, why do you do it? Um, what's been its impact on your career? Um, so I think it's really important. Uh, you know, we and are, I can interrupt here, actually. The, the listener should know that um, that I just sprung that on Ken right after a waitress handed him a whiskey, which is how many archaeologists, <laughs> myself included, feel the appropriate time to talk about service to the discipline. So uh, cheers, Ken, and then we'll, we'll talk about yeah, service here. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think it's really important to, um, we're, we're, we're really lucky as archaeologists to be able to work on the stuff that we do, um, but our discipline didn't get to where it did without um, having people kind of take on key roles and advancing, you know, important things within our discipline. And so the reason that we have standards of practice today is because people within the discipline chose to kind of step up 
and contribute beyond just their regular research. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's part of a larger body of service work that I think um, it's important. You know, it's the same as uh, maybe why you're a volunteer in your community. Maybe there's a reason why you go to a soup kitchen, you help out once a week. Um, in, in our discipline, it's really important to, uh, if I want to talk about ethical principles, uh, one of the ethical principles is that I give back um, more than I take from the discipline as well. And so I think it's really important to be able to uh, contribute uh, on the broader goals of disciplinary uh, advancement. Um, I'm interested in it as well. Uh, you know, I think it's just, uh, it's nice to be able to co uh, collaborate with other colleagues um, on things that I think are outside of my research, but are, you know, intimately tied to a discipline, which I've, you know, devoted most of my life to and, and, and really thoroughly enjoy all aspects of. And so I want to see it be doing better and, uh, and more people learning about what we do. Great. Yeah. And have you personally learned things from your service roles? Because you mentioned one of the, that you have an opening on your um, committee, the um, advocacy committee for a student. What, what, are, what are advantages to students? So, I mean, so, you know, both of us as grad advisors would advise students don't overextend on service, but it, you know, it might make sense to have one or two service roles in the discipline. Yeah. What sort of things do you learn in a, in a role like that? Um, so if you're a student, one of the things is uh, not only is, are these fairly minor time commitments, like uh, uh, they also look great on a CV. So when you're applying for graduate school or you're applying for grants or things like that, um, you can actually demonstrate that you actually like care about the discipline that you're choosing to proceed with um, by, you know, by showing on a CV that you're participating in these things. But some of the stuff that I've learned, like I've been able to participate. Um, I've always been interested in heritage legislation and law and how it is, you know, um, uh, leg legislation or regulations shape how we do archaeology. Um, and so I've been involved over the last year, basically, with um, a, a group of heritage professionals from across the country reviewing the new federal legislation, Bill C-23, which is passing through the parliament right now. And um, that would be an opportunity that I wouldn't have. I'm, I'm, I'm among probably a small group of archaeologists that actually is kind of seeing how this is going to develop and, and being able to bring my own opinions and thoughts on what could be better with this legislation forward uh, to, you know, potentially affect change and make the legislation better from our perspective. Right. Yeah. I think that's also the sort of important role. Um, so I, you know, the, I've had a much more, uh, <laughs> I do, I do less of this and I think I, I thrive less in that environment than you do, but I, but I've also felt like I've done some stuff with the, with the RPA, that's the registered professional archeologist. Can I both members of that? Was on, uh, I did some service work for them and the Association of Professional Archaeologists in Brunswick and the Maine Archaeological Society. Um, and have sort of felt that it's really, really useful to get a sense of what sort of things are making the archaeological community concerned or what sorts of things are making them tick. And, but one of the things, if you, can, if you can get involved in an organization that has a lot of public-facing work, Something like the Abyssinian Committee, you get, a, I think, a better sense about translating your work for the public, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you get a better sense, too. Um, you know, it's really important to have, like, a student's perspective on these things uh, because uh, you guys are kind of the up and coming. And I think that, you know, they tend to be tuned in a little bit more to, like, things like the public. And, yeah. and uh, you're, you're a little bit closer to the ground, I think, than we are sometimes. Yeah, I think that's true. And, um, and certainly closer to training the next generation, which is going to be increasingly important here. Uh, as we face a massive shortage of archaeologists yeah. in North America. So this is a recurring theme uh, that uh, that I think we probably owe an, an episode on, maybe coming up sometime soon. But I think so. I've talked to no less than three people already in the last two days who have uh, talked about the amount of work that they have ahead of them and the lack of people available to do that work. 
Um, and, uh, and this is a recurring theme um, that, you know, we're now hearing about uh, uh, in Canada and across the United States. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think is maybe going to be a theme for the next few years and, and potentially has some really um, uh, deleterious effects for the archaeological work because um, what would happen in a situation where you don't have enough archaeologists to do archaeology work is that uh, there may be decisions start getting made that the archaeology work just shouldn't happen yeah. because it's going to either delay or uh, potentially um, uh, uh, totally end uh, the potential for development projects and that sort of thing that, that uh, you know, um, you essentially don't want archaeology to become small potatoes uh, and fall apart because we can't get enough people out in the field, basically. Yeah, I think that's right. Or, or, or cutting corners at, at how well prepared the people in the field are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's true. And um, you're giving a paper uh, in Paper's in Honor of Day Black. Yeah. Uh, and tell us about that paper. So we're, we'll talk more, um, or well, either we'll talk more about this, or Ken will edit this in such a way that it'll seem as though time has been warped. And, and he's going to insert us talking more about Papers in Honor of Day Black and a little bit about Day Black ahead of this. Or we're going to do this. We're just going to follow Time's arrow and, and going, to, going to provide it to you uh, in the raw, mostly unedited yeah. um, version here. But, uh, but Ken, what is uh, your paper in Papers in Honor of Day Black going to be about? Uh, so it's, um, it's called These Are the Daves I Know. Um, and for those of you who are of a certain generation would remember a really great show called Kids in the Hall. Uh, and uh, um, so it's actually it's it's kind of a funny title, but it's more about Dave's uh, contributions to essentially lithic uh, analysis uh, in New Brunswick and on the Maritimes more generally uh, uh, as a whole. Um, so Dave was sort of uh, key in introducing this uh, 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 approach to lithic analysis, so stone tool analysis, uh, and categorizing the actual materials themselves through what's called a petrographic series approach. Um, and it's kind of a very, like, uh, um, sort of simple but also really nuanced way to look at stone tools without getting bogged down in, in sort of geochemical sourcing and that sort of thing and gives us a really good way, um, a means to sort of understand uh, human spaces through, uh, you know, calibrating your lithic materials into local and exotic um, and kind of looking at where people are going and when and who they're interacting with. And so we're kind of doing an overview of what the petrographic series approach is I'm talking about some of the data from the lower Wallastog that Susan Blair and I have collected over the last few years. And then I kind of bring in a case example of, of uh, lo and behold, Washington Church. Uh, it's hard to believe, listener. I, yeah. I, just, I, just, I heard the gas rippling across <laughs> North America and, and uh, even among our, our three listeners using you know, VPNs <laughs> in New Zealand. Um, and, and using Washington Church as a way to look at um, not just how materials are coming into a region, but where they're going from a region. Um, and uh, and sort of how how Dave's sort of guidance for both of us has kind of led to these interesting conclusions that we can make about how uh, ancestral Wabanaki groups were were sort of uh, changing through time during the maritime woodland period. Great, and the listener will remember that I, that I'm I'm deeply distrustful of lithic uh, sourcing. So one of the things I like about the petrographic series approach is that it acknowledges ambiguity. It, uh, it it it's probabilistic. Yep. It talks about these things that are most likely from yep. various places. Yeah. Um, it, it has this really great um, uh, uh, qualitative language about uh, it ranks things from local to probably local to possibly exotic to probably exotic to exotic. Yeah. So. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Ken, so what's your connection to Dave Black? Uh, so Dave actually was one of the first people that ever introduced me to pre-contact archaeology uh, in the Maritimes. Um, you I was, were like eight, right? Uh, I think. I, 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 I think I was probably in middle school or high school. Okay. But I, I was, 
Uh, I was naive enough to think that uh, archaeology was Indiana Jones, and so was pretty surprised that Dave didn't have a bullwhip on his on his uh, on his belt. But uh, uh, he showed me indigenous artifacts, so I was introduced there. But uh, I had Dave as a prof when I was an undergrad, um, and uh, I think I was probably not a great student um, until maybe my my last year. And and uh, Dave, if you're listening, this is Ken's big chance to apologize for falling asleep in your class. <laughs> <laughs> and um uh but uh when i came back to do my masters um i think uh with uh, with a department of two archaeologists with sue uh, sue blair and dave black in it um and two incoming graduate students and myself and gabe uh, it, yeah. it was a literal coin flip for who ended up being supervising yes and so dave supervised gabe and sue supervised me but as a result um we kind of all ended up working together on on both projects and and uh, mentorship from both sides and so it's a uh he's uh he's was a mentor and an educator first and has become a has become a good friend in in uh, years since so. absolutely yeah and, and that's been one of the great things about working with dave is just the uh the i think serious sense of uh camaraderie that he really fostered among us who were all working on on woodland period topics uh, around that time and, and grab a seat gentlemen we've just been joined we've just been joined by uh by two uh two of our favorites Northeast archaeologist Nathaniel Kitchell, Dartmouth College, soon to be Salve Regina, covered out. Eco Four, uh, soon to be finishing his thesis, I hear, at the University of New Brunswick. Is that right, Trevor? C'est possible. Oh, Trevor is actually just the listener can't see this, but he's reaching into his bag to pull out a finished thesis. Is that is that already bound, Trevor? Is it, it is. bad? Yeah. Yes, if you're listening, I've just, Trevor just revealed an entire thesis. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm just going to take the drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before, we, before we get too far down the road, uh, Gabe is also presenting in this session and is involved, is not just co-chair, but on a few papers, um, one of which you're the lead on, or two you're the lead on? Uh, no, just one. Just, just one. one. Yep. And so why don't you talk about the one you're lead on and sure. some of the other pieces that tie in with the Let's so talk about the whole, the whole project kind of holistically, which, um, so Dave was my graduate supervisor and mentor and really really good friend and learned a ton from him uh true blessing in my life and but one of the, the reasons that i'm particularly excited to be presenting in this uh, session is that uh, i work now on the main quadi region so i work on the main half of the bay that dave uh, did much of his work on and so the series of papers that uh either i'm presenting or my kind of lab group are presenting or my colleagues are presenting uh deal with that work and we build on or work within many of the frameworks that Dave proposed for that research. We actually um, have often worked with Dave on this research, but because we didn't tell him papers in honor of David Black were happening uh, until he found out by checking the programs, uh, he's not included on any of them. The, uh, so we had to we had to sort of we had to sort of wiggle through that a little bit carefully. How did Emily put it? Uh, apparently, the apparently before Dave checked the program, uh, Emily, uh, Dave's uh, a partner, and Emily uh, sent me an email that, that said she was worried because David asked if he and I were in cahoots. <laughs> and the uh, the answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so so that's the work we're presenting on, and in particular, we're working on. We've got this project where we look at collections from the Robert S. Peabody Institute that were collected in the 1950s. Um, uh, by a guy named Ted Stoddard in close collaboration with a vacation archaeologist. So it really fits within the framework of a lot of the work Dave did um, out on his side of the Quadri region. And yeah, we're going to have coastal erosion. We're going to talk about uh, stuff that's eroded out and is a little bit older than the stuff we find in intact deposits now. 
And so folks that are presenting include uh, Josh Cummings, who's uh, a graduate student of yours, and that we've heard from earlier in the episode. That's right. And uh, Catherine Patton and Arthur Anderson. Excellent. Uh, well, so folks, I think we're going to flip it over to a couple other people who are also in this uh, session with us. Uh, so, uh, Nathaniel, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, some of the work that you've been doing uh, recently, what you're going to be presenting on in this session, and, and uh, whatever you'd like to riff on. Hi, I'm uh, Nathaniel Kitchell. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And since 2015, I've been conducting field work in northern Maine, in the Munsungan Lake region of northern Maine. Uh, and I'm specifically interested in raw material, lithic raw material acquisition, transport, and discard uh, as related to quarry sites. Yeah, and, and the listener might remember that Nathaniel and I share a passion for red shirt. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true. Ken and I have both published papers on the social significance of red shirt, separated by a period of probably 10,000 years. No, uh, you guys published those papers within two or three years of one another. <laughs> well, that, that, that's true. Uh, <laughs> but on uh, in the Northeast, right? And, we, and I think we've, we both put both of those in show notes at one point, I think. I think so. Okay, good. And if not, we'll, we'll rectify that. But that's, uh, Nathaniel, could you just tell them the name of that paper, roughly speaking, so they can find it in, in the old show notes? Uh, the social significance of uh, red chert during the fluted point period of Northeastern North America. Excellent. That's in Journal of Geologic Archaeology. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Came, out, came out recently. Great. Um, and so my, my interest in, in the Munsungan Lake region stems from the uh, it being a source of red, very distinctive red and red and green shirt that seems to show up with remarkable frequency during the fluid point period. So the fluid point period, for those that don't know, right, is is maybe thirteen thousand years to eleven thousand seven hundred years ago uh, during the the Pleistocene here in the Northeast, when the Northeast would have at least in the far north would have been a very different place. Um, and folks during that period were indigenous peoples during that period were moving that raw material it seems really 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 long distances so the Munsungi lake region is located in far northern maine um and yet that material appears in fluted point sites in massachusetts potentially in connecticut uh certainly in vermont and in new hampshire uh extensively in southern maine which actually is really far from northern maine Right, um, but everything's really far from northern Maine, doesn't it? But, and, and even Munsungan is far from northern Maine. It's like far, far northern Maine. <laughs> Somehow Munsungan is far from everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Like you can go, you can go via Maine, you can go via Quebec, and it's a long way, no matter how it, how you want to do it. It's true. Uh, and and just so we've talked about turbo on the show a couple times, but uh, we've talked about it in the context of a small turbo, which is sort of a bedded limestone kind of. Uh, Get this nice slurry into a cavity, basically. Because yeah. what's different about one sangen, uh, like geologically, what might be how is it formed, and and it's sometimes called a mudstone. And, and so, you want to clarify if uh, if that's a wrong categorization, or what's your thought on geology? I mean, the problem with the geology of the Munsungan Lake Formation is it, it's complex. So it's a volcanic island arc environment. So something like the Aleutians or the Hawaiian Islands that formed out in the middle of an ocean that was then subsequently smashed by tectonism into a continent. And then there, there it sits, right? And th this happens pretty regularly um, in, in various parts of various continents. You can find them. But uh, it used to be an open ocean environment, different depths. Yeah. Um, but probably associated just like Hawaii, just the, the Aleutians with pretty extensive volcanism. Right? So in the formation, you have a, a large quantity of volcanic rocks. You can find vesicular basalts, you can find regular basalts, rhyolites, etc. Uh, things very much associated with extrusive volcanism. Um, and within those... Extrusive volcanism for the listeners, also Nathaniel's punk band. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'm not that cool. I'm not yeah. cool enough to be a punk band. 
Um, sadly, nor do I have the musicality to put up with them. They, they, they showed up in the season of Star Trek that never got aired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, is that, that is that the same season that has the uh, the fulsome point that it impales a red shirt? <laughs> Wait, really? Oh, yeah, really. You don't you don't know about this? Yeah, yeah. You, should, you should Google this. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll try to put that in the show notes if we can find it. Um, I bet I can find the episode name. Uh, yeah, send it to us. Just find the episode. It's not right now. Um, in any case, <laughs> but uh, that 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 just illustrates just how not cool I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in, in in any case, and there's a lot of a lot of volcanic action going on in, in the uh, Minnesota Lake Formation, but within those rocks, and sometimes sandwiched between massive volcanic rocks and volcanic plastic rocks and things like that. Um, is a fairly extensive series of deposits of fine-grained rock that you can flint nap, right? It breaks like glass. It exhibits a conchoidal fracture. And so, therefore, suitable for the creation of chipstone tools. You can control how it breaks. Uh, and there are varying qualities of this material within the Monsanto Lake Formation. There are varying colors of this material within the Monsanto Lake Formation. Uh, so some of it is very high quality, very glassy. Some of it you can see through. It's it's quite pretty. Um, usually a, a light gray variety. It's like that. There's red, of course. And Nathaniel um, like identified the proofs we hadn't known where the source was of the of the kind of red green Christmas tree stuff, which Nathaniel identified in what season was that? Uh, that I think was 2015, when I was alone in the woods. Oh yeah, just like just wand- wandering around unsupervised. Yeah. in in. Three million plus acres of not yeah, yeah yeah you really aren't cool are you? And then, yeah. loud scream of joy. Yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, but the caribou said we haven't heard a scream like that in twelve thousand years. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was it was it was tough. I was out like I said, I was out there by myself, and I wasn't going to. Uh, I didn't actually see another person for like twenty four hours. So. Yeah. I didn't have anybody to tell that I found something that I thought was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's really quite a story. Just tramping around through the woods. Yeah. I mean, but following a series of breadcrumbs that were, you know, that I picked up from a lot of folks, local folks that spend a lot of time. So cool. there's no there's no way that an archaeologist can do this alone. You can't spend enough time yourself out there just like checking stuff out. That's great. And so I'm, I'm trying to, um, Mrs. Uh, or Mrs. Uh, Baker, is that someone you were? Amanda Barker. Amanda Barker, sorry. Yeah, okay. Amanda, yes. Amanda Barker, who, okay. who is awesome. Um, so at the time, she was a forest ranger for the Bain Forest Service, whose yeah. job was to go out and inspect logging operations to make sure that they were in the confines of old, right? Right. And so her job brought her out into those woods sometimes six days a week, um, depending on you know whether it was high season or not. Yeah. And logging operations often... You know, involve some sort of like surf, near surface disturbance, building roads, things like that. And so she had the opportunity to see a lot of stuff in a lot of places. And so she was just, and she has a very keen interest in the natural and human history of Northern Maine, yeah. where she's from. Um, and she was, she was basically, Amanda was keeping notes. That's great. Um, where she saw different stuff. Sometimes she was taking GPS points where she was finding stuff. And Nona sort of, fortuitous for archaeology, maybe less good for us. At one point years ago, when there was a big ice storm up in Maine, she was out. She got out of her truck to take a look at something and slipped and fell. Oh, knocked the wind out of herself. But when she like sort of came to, so to speak, 
she was looking at a block of red chert in a boro pit, a place where they, the road builders come along with an excavator yeah. and, and, and ripped into ripped into this outcrop, and like there it was. And it turns out that was an outcrop of this Christmas tree stuff. That's great. It's actually that really taps into one of the themes we kind of had in the podcast about you know we want to try to work with communities. Yeah. In part, you know, in coastal erosion work we do. It's that these folks are there all the time. It's very similar to the work in these really far areas. So, Nathaniel, I, I want to get you on the record before we let you go here. Is it a chert or a churty tough? No comment? <laughs> no comment. Probably the right answer. <laughs> you noticed that he, uh, when I said Mudson, I don't think you saw it, but his face went a little Yeah. <laughs> cool. There's a lot of controversy about the geology up there. Let's yeah. and, and, that, and for me, that's the, uh, the, a discussion for geologists to have. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm an archaeologist that, that dabbles in geology. I know enough geology to, like, try to understand the archaeology but you know i'm not really in a position to understand the intricacies of that particular argument and what so when you're talking about a mudstone too right you're it's also a textural category right yeah and so that's why i couldn't answer your question and i didn't because sometimes munsungin the materials from munsungin are what you might see seem to be quite muddy right they're they're less less fine grained but then there are other times when that material for whatever reason and I'm not sure that the geologists actually understand completely what, why. But in some instances, there are places where it is remarkably beautiful, waxy, fine-grained material that is, you know, probably among some of the nicest chirps that you can get in the region. Yeah. Um, and it also happens to have this really excellent blue, uh, blue and red color. Yeah, yeah, that's the veins that kind of run through. Absolutely. Stunning. Yes. And, uh, so and 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 this isn't unique to Monsangin. Like the final review that uh, as we we're getting ready to write our paper, which we heard uh, Cliff Shaw, who's the geologist involved in the work, uh, um, had a comment that uh, it was like his final comment was, "I'm not actually convinced this is a, a chert, uh, but that's a conversation for another day." For Wash the Moak too. For Wash the Moak, yeah. Really? yeah. Okay, so so what was what, what's the controversy there? That so so that there's been uh, back and forth even back to like um, Rick Bailey first identifying. Yeah, there's been some speculation that uh, that there's actually some volcanic uh, origin of that particular formation. Uh, All right. There's volcanic parts of because there's so much volcanic volcanic. Uh, Material just to the south, mm -hmm. and I think it's actually it may be more related to stuff like North Bay, for example, which is a uh, you know uh, infilling volcanic basically, right? And, yeah. and so, so yeah, so Cliff's thought is that you know there may be some questions about the geology of Wyeth that uh, that are not fully resolved. Although I think most people would say it to be very classic limestone. Okay, so the yeah. so the host material in, for Washington is limestone. Yeah. So that's that's different than Munsungan chur. The host material for Munsungan is not. Limestone. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the host material that it seems to be in, and, and probably host material isn't even the right term. It is a, these are large beds yeah. of, of nappable material of, of chert. And they seem to, if you can find the context, seem to be in contact with these really massive, like, strata of, uh, of volcanic plastic material. So, like, some sort of like lithified volcanic ash or like volcanic material. And these are big. But it's not limestone, right? And so that leads to the the question of how did this chert form? And as you alluded to, their geologists are discussing whether it's a true chert or if there is sufficient volcanic a sufficient volcanic component to this material to classify it as a highly silicious or cherty type. 
yeah. which would be a material where a volcanic ash is ejected into into seawater, probably in this case relatively shallow seawater, and that that silica was coming from from the, the those ash shards, which are functionally glass dissolving in seawater, remobilizing silica, becoming highly silicious in certain layers, and so functionally this material is composed of silicified volcanic ash, you know, which by some geologist definition is a tough. <laughs> but 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 whether that makes it not a chert is I, I guess the, the academic question for geologists, whereas yeah. archaeologists are primarily concerned with, you know, can you can you break it into pointy things? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Start pointy things. Yeah. Uh and it does that really well. Right. And the listener will uh, uh can't see the faces again. Daniel and I are very much enjoying this conversation. And, uh, and Gabe is sinking further and further into the seat while we talk about geology. Yeah, yeah, the listener... And drinking is great money. Yeah, the listener may have just heard my cigarette lighter. As I, <laughs> but, yeah, but no, the, the, uh, the, the great thing about rock is, is it's fantastic when geology has to be someone else's problem. That's always been my... But, the, uh, but I was actually out with Daniel, um, was it, yeah, last summer. And, uh, and it, it's very cool. And it, the, what, what I am very excited about is some of the work they've done on just the cultural landscape up there, which is super cool, testing the cultural landscape. Um, and also a lot of work on the stuff you guys are doing on quarry sites. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. And um, so I wanted, uh, though, if you could also plug your field school, we're going to probably at some point, we've been trying to get people, we're, we're going to try to get people to mention their field school so that the, the next generation has an opportunity to think about where they might learn some of their skills. And also, um, you've just accepted a job at Salve Regina with your, um, also with Heather Rockwell, who works uh, on at Munzungan with you. Yes. And... Um, Tell us about your field school. So the uh, so in 2022, we ran the inaugural Salva Regina Archaeological Field School in the Munsungan Lake region, next next to this recently discovered quarry. Um, and as Gabe mentioned, we're very interested in the cultural landscape, but especially the process of making stone tools from start to finish, from gathering the raw rock from the quarry out to finish tools, and then radiating out across the landscape in various ways to various places at various times and trying to understand how those processes relate to each other, relate to time, relate to climate, relate to environment, all of the complex factors that make humans, like that humans have to interact with in their, their daily, daily lives, right? Um, shifting and changing through time. And this is an interesting place to do it because you've got this rock that is at least mostly looks pretty unique. Uh, and so adjacent to the that quarry, it, starting say 700 meters away and, and further out, up beyond a kilometer, there we've detected a whole series of stone tool manufacturing workshops. And they, it, it, it's quite clear that this is what they are because they're talking about you know 50 by 50 centimeter quads, right? Of excavation units, so relatively small, um, maybe like a little bit bigger than the footprint of a milk cart, right? Um, and in five centimeters, some of those have produced nearly 2,000 flakes. <laughs> so, the, so the sediments are basically just birds. In fact, when like when you start to screen them, the, the what sediment is there is sometimes stained red by the church. Oh, wow. Yeah, I understand that Nathaniel's new uh, department chair at Salve was, was very surprised when Nathaniel, uh, when he was negotiating to get the job, he said, well... Tell me about the load bearing qualities of the lab floor. Yeah. And the, <laughs> as the, uh, the van rolls in with the uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, but we're going to need, we're going to need to be on, we're going to need to be on the first floor. Yeah. 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 We could have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, 
rough on the elevator. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very rough on the elevator. Or in our case, we don't have an elevator, so carrying it all upstairs. Uh, it's a good thing the lab is, in fact, on the on the first floor. But the field school is exploring this cultural landscape, um, trying to find the the edges of uh, of where these workshop areas are, so they might be projected in the future, um, and also to try to identify uh, places where we can actually figure out time, right? With either through radiocarbon dates or temporally diagnostic artifacts. So, you know, projectile points that tend to occur at a specific age range. I would love to find a fluted point. We still haven't yet. That, yeah. might, that might be the entire goal of the field school. Yeah. I, it, it, no, it's not. But, uh, <laughs> but it's not not. Oh, sorry. I think we had a rare moment of interesting from our guest there. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Uh, the listener couldn't see that, but he, but you, you, you've heard Ken's golfies on the podcast before. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the, the, in 2024, we'll be returning to the site with a, with a field school. We're taking a year off in, in 2023 to, yeah. to catalog the vast catalog wash, go through all of the vast quantity of artifacts produced from the last field school. Yeah. Um, and then to have a, a better idea of where we would like to go specifically on that landscape. Um, and if there's areas that seem particularly interesting, when we've had a chance to take a closer look at some of the materials that we've excavated, um, but it will consist of uh, at least 10 days uh, out in the North Main Woods. In this instance, we are, you know, give or take 60 miles from the nearest paved road. And so 800 kilometers. Like <laughs> <laughs> what is that in parsecs? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's many. Um, so the uh it, it it's actually a really wonderful experience it's a beautiful area um if you happen to like camping and like archaeology and you know maybe don't mind black flies too badly um and so that if, if those things aren't a total turn off to you then uh then it's like the a great field school for you to look into and you have a you have a field school website or somewhere that they can find info on at this point or is not, that something maybe it, you can share with us it's not live but we can share it with you when uh when it goes live awesome okay. please do yeah and um no that's great and, and one of the and totally it's asked to it's pretty amazing landscape amazing field school um well, thanks very much, Daniel, uh, for joining us. That was Daniel Kitchen at uh, soon to be at Salvador Regina, currently at Dartmouth College. Graduates on the new job, and uh, we should probably get you back on to talk rocks and paleo Indian sometime. Yeah, that would be great. Well, All thanks right. for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. So we're back, and uh, we are joined. In fact, we never planned. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but for editing purposes, we're back. You're, so you're going to do some editing? Is that? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the, li the listener will know that what we actually just did was try to make dinner plans. <laughs> <laughs> Which, so, uh, did not say make dinner plans. Vastly <laughs> complex with this many uh, social networks at a conference. Yeah. yeah. Um, and had a really great dinner club last night, but uh, very impressive. Yeah, we, I mean, rye bread, yeah, me too, but uh, I was going to say the, the seafood is the obvious one. You sort of feel like you're just close to the ocean, of course, we do that well. We had like fry bread artichoke thing this afternoon that was yeah. fantastic. It was, um, you know, it came out in a skillet. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the the listener is going to realize that, that Ken and I are, are both uh, food and beverage forward in this podcast. And it's, <laughs> it's not just because we are still hoping for the Balmady Scotch Company and uh, to come through uh, with that uh, with that sponsorship or the obvious sponsorship would be the 8,000 spicy Cheetos we, we ate. <laughs> On the drive <laughs> between Fredericton, 
And that's actually a pretty good transition to introduce Arthur Anderson here, who provided the American snack food, which he brought over the border from uh, his home in Portland. Uh, Arthur Anderson teaches at the University of New England. Oh, yeah, sorry, Portland, Maine, we should say. Yeah, the uh, the, yeah, the or, or what Arthur might call the Portland. Yeah. Uh, so Arthur's uh, faculty at University of New England and works in Maine. And uh, Arthur, what are you uh, presenting on this? Uh, you're, oh, sorry, I was going to say, uh, Arthur's also in favor in honor of David Black. And uh, what are you talking about this uh, this conference, Arthur? Uh, I'm I'm talking about uh, collections mostly. The listener doesn't know that that Arthur just reacted because he's, he was pretty sure he heard the dulcet tones of uh, she's acting single, so I'm drinking doubles, <laughs> <laughs> pouring through the uh, bar here at the Member Two Conference Center. Um, yeah, I'm a faculty at the University of New England, um, and I'll be presenting mostly on collections work, both with museum collections and uh, active collectors and mid 20th century collectors whose work has found their way to museums. Um, but looking at uh, the archaic and the main side of the Quadi region, kind of through the lens of these collections that um, due to coastal erosions, uh, erosion, these collections from uh, anywhere from the 19th century through the middle of the 20th century, and even in some cases into the 1970s, um, contain materials just not there anymore. It's been washed away. Um, so in various forms and with varying levels of formality, these collections are, are I think, or best kind of potential for looking at the archaic and the main body region. Um, and then that gives sort of crucial insight into that uh, archaic terminal, archaic woodland transition uh, and sort of when various changes were taking place. Great. And uh, and this kind of ties in with, uh, we had a hit piece last week on an article that you gave, uh, just packing up in the main mold. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Dembo. Dembo point. Dembo point. Arthur was the lead author, and I'm going to have him talk about it. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was a it was a fun article because we actually uh, we first looked at the collection because uh, we were talking to the land trust that had an easement on the site and they were interested uh, in finding more about the archaeology that they were sort of stewards of. So when we were at the museum that housed it, we uh, kind of rustled through the collection and it was pretty small and pretty disparate. Um, didn't uh, necessarily leap out at us as a collection that we'd want to do further research on, but we uh, were looking into it on behalf of that donor, and uh, so we we wrote up a little bit of it, and I, you know, kind of got carried away. In a sense, the interesting thing about it was that it was kind of on wasn't a collection that was going to be in the next American Antiquity paper. It wasn't a collection that was going to be in a book. But what it was, was a representative sample of how local collectors were approaching these small, already eroding sites um, in the 1940s and 50s. So the, the story, if you will, kind of came about those collectors, the, the Napton brothers, um, and, and then I guess eventually sort of a meditation on um, early collecting practices and how that's changed. But one of the key things being that the, the, the Napton brothers um, didn't leave a lot of record of their activities other than their collections, but uh, they were engaging with professional and semi-professional archaeologists at the time. There is a real continuum of, of, I think, levels of perceived professionalism among the community that was all working on these archaeological sites. Um, so that's got a lot to say about the nature of avocational archaeology, that, that really... Uh, one of the things that distinguishes collecting and even looting from avocational archaeology is that engagement with science, that building a record, um, recording data, sharing data, 
uh, the kind of thing. And, and it was interesting to look at what they were picking up and not picking up right? as, as really sort of dedicated collectors. They seem to have been, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is they're leaving flakes on the beach. They're not too worried about flakes, but they're picking up formal tools. Um, but we had to look three or four times at some of the scrapers to make sure there were scrapers and not flakes. Which shows the listener that, can't see this, but Ken is leaning forward and he just desperately wants to ask, but what color were those flakes? <laughs> <laughs> and so Nathaniel, Nathaniel's leaning in and, oh, flakes? Tell me more. Tell me more. But yeah, yeah. We're the odd one out here. Yeah, I know. I know. Are you seeing through time, like, uh, so you guys have this, like, interesting window where you're seeing, uh, you're you're working with independent archaeologists, like, today, you're seeing kind of the historical record of what they're doing. So are you seeing uh, kind of interesting change through time in both, like, the way that they are collecting, what they're collecting, but what they're aiming to see? Like, or is it, has the archaeological record for an education archaeologist changed in this particular piece? I, I think it definitely has, and, and, and it was working. Game, jump in, but um, but I mean, older collections have older artifacts. Older yeah. collections have archaic stuff that we just don't find anymore, or if we find hints of it, it's maybe in the intertitles. Um, and one of the things I'll be getting to, into in my paper is that the, the the little scrap of the archaic that we are getting in these their collections um, is is interesting. I think it's got something to tell us of the pace, the, the uh, nature of the transition from the archaic to the woodland. Um, I think in terms of the the practices of the collectors, though, I don't know. I, thinking out loud while being recorded is always a great idea, right? Um, oh, we do this every other week. Okay. But what I think is interesting is particularly in these days of, of social media and where, you know, looting is a legitimate problem uh, and, a, and an increasing problem. And, and I uh, talked about great things in Nova Scotia with the... Uh, the program there, Curse of Oak Island, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that we are seeing is that our perception of um, our perception of a lot of collectors is changing to be closer to the Instagram looters that we all see. Right. Um, and I think what we're kind of finding is it's not it's not necessarily true. I think there are still a lot of uh, a lot of pretty careful. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, people that are are carefully collecting and they're reporting and they're remembering um and they're being careful about the archaeological material that they're picking up that they're they're noting where stuff comes from and they're they don't know who to talk to for professional archaeologists they they don't know who to engage with and they're kind of uh i think nervous to stick their neck out because they don't want to be tarred with the same brush as the instagram looters yeah. and uh and, so, and and just to contextualize for the listeners so in canada uh, in almost every province, I think, in every province, it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, any kind of collecting is actually explicitly illegal activity. Whereas in Maine, the legal context is a little bit different. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah it's got to do with private property. Um, it's like we're talking about America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Arthur and I are both Americans. You, you probably couldn't tell that from our voices. Um, but the basically, in, in the United States, private property legislation is. Precludes the idea that there could be artifacts on private property that would not be yours if you own the yeah, property. Private property wins over everything else every time. So as a result, um, there are in fact all sorts of ways in which you can break the law by collecting though, which is that you know, first of all, most private most property isn't private. Uh, and then most property that's private isn't yours. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, so there are there are actually all sorts of uh, I would say sort of oblique ways in which looting is prevented. And one of the, I think, useful distinctions, and I, I don't want to speak for RSP, but when we, 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 RSP has kind of talked about, I mean, you use the phrase, 
um, you know, responsible collector. And I think that idea of kind of responsible collector is maybe a useful distinction, right? It's the guy who sees stuff eroding at the beach. It's not the guy who yeah. picks it up and reports it. It's not the guy who sneaks on to, uh, into a national park and takes a hole, right, to get artifacts. Good stewards of this record, and that's also really important when it comes to engaging with 
uh, responsible collectors advocation, archaeologists, because it's, it's just the boots in the ground in these uh, coastal and intertidal environments are are hugely important. I yeah, Cape Corpus. What's the line that you use yeah. Dave, that uh, within your career no longer can be work on coastal sites? Yeah, I mean that was a realization that Matt Betts had, and then we sort of thought about that. Mm-hmm. That um, I mean, the, yeah. the you know, tragic inverse of the spread of my PowerPoint slide is yeah, that, that realization that yeah, I had to, I had to sit with that for a few days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, archaeologists are used to seeing PowerPoint slides and thinking that was the past, but it's an ongoing process that's getting direct the archaeological record. Um, so, uh, Arthur, uh, among other things, you have an interesting perspective on the protostar period that I think our listeners might find interesting because uh, you've worked on the protostar period. That's the period around European contact where. There's hazy records. Um, they did it for episode twelve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's possible we're just going to cut this. This interview may run long. We'll just cut these pieces. We, we may actually be making a gigantic collage out of this. <laughs> and, uh, so Ken and I will be back in November after we finish making other people do our podcast. And they, uh, put with the number of interviews you have done, uh, <laughs> tune in to see what you said. Could yeah. sort of be your influence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, find out what you thought <laughs> last year. I have a sixteen-hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to a lot of podcasts. Absolutely, Um, but but uh, the protostar period is period around the time of European contact, where folks are um, where uh, Europeans are leaving very very spotty uh, written records, and the indigenous archaeological records also getting kind of screwed up by Europeans. So you've got this like really kind of difficult time period to understand either archaeologically or historically. And you have an interesting perspective that you worked on this period uh, here in North America, but before that, you worked on an equivalent uh, European period. Yeah, a similar European period. I mean, I, I kind of consider my, you know, my one sentence big thing to be like the archaeology of culture change. Yeah, I'm interested in primarily through material culture. Um, but those those proto historic periods uh, in my my PhD and my undergraduates. Uh, some of my graduate work was working in uh, sort of the northern edge of the Roman Empire, looking at that interaction between uh, European people and and sort of the process of Roman colonization, um, about which there's been some really interesting work recently. Uh, so coming back to North America and and kind of using a little bit of that perspective to look at this other major period of cultural change and one that is. Um, uh, I think this is important to look at throughout space and time, but if we look at the proto-historic in the Northeast and in the Maritime Peninsula, um, that is really important to the horrific colonial foundations of the world that we all live in today. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that makes this a hugely important time period. Um, and it, it's an area where archaeology is really important because we have sparse European written records, the things that they understood and misunderstood and got wrong and were racist about and so on and so forth. Um, and we have an archaeological record um, that is an expression of the Wabanaki experience. But too often we we over prioritize these European records. Like a, a European person uh, drew something, a European person uh, wrote down what they thought they saw. Hey, it's history. Hey, yeah, we got yeah. it. We did it. Now you know we have we have real information. Um, so archaeology is really important to um, check those European records and um, I think to provide a voice to, you know, part of the, the world of Wabanaki, but provide a, a voice to that indigenous um, experience of those early moments of colonization. Um, and that's relevant across the world. And so the, the listener um, will also uh, 
I'm trying to think how to sort of explain this, but the so when you were, would you could you compare this to? I think sometimes the, the kind of old world analogy of what you worked on in Europe might actually be helpful for the listener to conceive of how you think about this here. I'll do it. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> done some rearranging of chairs. We're gonna have yeah, yeah. to back and talk about the Romans. Uh, but uh, in the uh, we, we've nabbed another one of our friends, uh, dear friends, and a dear colleague, and uh, uh, consummate professional and business owner, uh, Sarah Beanland, who is the uh, principal and uh, CEO and president. What, what, is, what is your full title? You're also the owner, right? And senior archaeologist is what it says on the card. Okay. Yeah. Uh, owner operator of Glorious Heritage Consulting and uh, uh, archaeologist who works primarily in Scotia, but has worked for the mayor who lives in the private sector and for public sector work and for indigenous communities and has done some fantastic research work. And uh, Sarah, what brings you to the conference and are you presenting and what, uh, what's, uh, what's on the go for this year? I would not miss this conference this year. This is the first time in the history of the Canadian Archaeological Association. Oh, and yeah. You helped organize this conference. And Sarah is also yeah. vice president yeah. at the yeah. Canadian Archaeological Association. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm going to say, you had to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but unless we can about Sarah's role, Sarah had assumed the one that is perhaps the most work and the least thanks at this conference. <laughs> it is an historic conference, truly. It's the first time, it's the 55th annual CAA conference, first time ever in its history it's been held and hosted in an Indigenous community, and in this case it's at Member 2 First Nation in Unamagi, and it is, it's a long time coming, but I think this is a truly historic event. And I hope that moving forward, that the conversations that take place here, because we have indigenous archaeologists from across the nation and beyond who have gathered in this place. And I think that the conversations that are beginning here, it's my hope that they will carry on and that they will, you know, that that Canadian archaeology will change in positive ways because of the conversations that are taking place this week here. And that feels like kind of a theme in your own cultural resource management work, which is involves a lot of collaborative um, work with the indigenous communities. Could you talk about that a little bit? So, sure. We did, um, I gave a presentation this afternoon on um, doing cultural resource management work within a collaborative archaeology framework. And we have been working for the past five years with Parks Canada, mainly at Pejan Kujik National Park, both their inland site and their seaside adjunct, uh, in a collaborative framework, which I had never done before. Um, and I I started off my talk by saying that the, the CRM industry, the state we are in right now, and actually when I saw you earlier, I mentioned this to you, um, the pace at which development is taking place, the pressures that are put on the archaeologists, the, um, just the, the, the intense amount of work and the, the pace at which we have to do the work is unmanageable. That, that's the state of CRM in Northeastern North America. There's a gentleman here from the American Cultural Resources Association, ACRA, and uh, he, he's here at the conference and he mentioned to me yesterday that they are looking for 8,000 uh, field tests. Just get the work done that they need to do right now. Uh, and he said, can I get some from Canada? And I said, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
they started hiring techs in January, which when I worked in the private sector was unheard of. You didn't even have techs on the go in January. And uh, so people are basically like free grabbing all of these uh, capable human beings and herpetologists and technicians uh, well before the field season is even possible. Uh, because uh, there's such a high demand. I'm guessing we've seen the same thing here, right? Absolutely. Like, uh, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, this is not sustainable. Um, and what what is something we'll have to give, and what's giving is the quality of the archaeology. It's compromising the archaeology that's being done. So what it we we were working under this collaborative framework with Parks Canada, which did give us a little bit more flexibility. Um, and what that basically that that model allowed Mi'kmaq community members and representatives from the KMKNO Archaeological Research Division to be at the table making decisions with Parks Canada, uh, how they want that the Mi'kmaq were uh, designing the testing strategies, uh, determining the testing intervals. Um, but there was also a lot of flexibility built into that model as well for the CRM archaeologist who was coming in to do that. And it um, it was really, really positive. That framework, that collaborative framework, I believe, and this is what I spoke about today, made me a better archaeologist and promoted better archaeology. And, and part of it is that built into that model is a moment a moment to stop and think is this is this should i be doing this is this the right way is this the right thing to do uh in the archaeology but collaboratively so that everybody has a moment to provide feedback ask questions express concerns but you have that moment to do that before you carry on and that moment, I think, is critical to ensure that the archaeology is done properly and ethically. And so in a practical way, you, my understanding is you sort of build this into your day in much the way that we used to have sort of um, uh, parkside safety meetings, meetings, right? Tailgate meetings, meetings. Yeah. yeah. So I've learned so much um, through this process. So one of the things that we do, um, we were working at Kedji Seaside. We had to do 2,000 shovel tests across the Barrens. And yeah. um, I had a young. So the listener can't see it. Sarah is actually still bleeding from her field safety. So the listener can what the barons are because we're familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Both like working stuff for yeah, yeah. It's um, it's top. Yeah, it's basically a wetland with sharp plants. Yeah, and tigs. Don't forget the tigs. It's a ground, right? Yeah, sink. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. We were, but the strate- it was relatively undisturbed and the stratigraphy was beautiful. The colors were so vibrant and they just, they were just popping, right? And it was gorgeous. So anyway, I had a young Mi'kmaq crew member with me and he was, he was stopped and uh, he wasn't doing anything. And I walked over to him and I said, like, what's up? Because, you know, like, why aren't you so I walked over to him and said, I don't feel good about this. And I said, okay, so, you know, tell me what, like, what's concerning you? 
And he said, my grandfather always told me that when you take something, like if you're hunting or you're fishing, when you take something from the earth, you give something back. And I was like, yeah, I get that. And he said, but we're not doing that. And he said, you know, we are, we are every, like a, a good shovel test in that environment was typically taking about 45 minutes. In 45 minutes, we are destroying what took 20,000 years to develop because the stratigraphy was beautiful, you know, and, and he could see that. And he said, we're, you know, it took 20,000 years at least for this beautiful profile to develop in front of us. And we're knocking them off in 45 minutes and we're just going. We're not even, we're not, it's like a machine, right? Which is what CRM has turned into. And he said, I just, I just think we should take a minute and recognize, you know, we are, we are making money off this. We are providing jobs. We are getting scientific data. We're writing articles and, and eventually we're allowing development. What are we giving back? So that really, that, that really had a profound impact on me as we were standing there. And we decided together that every time we do a shovel test now, we take a moment and we sprinkle some tobacco before we backfill the unit to say, to recognize that the earth has, is providing us with our jobs and our, the data that we are using to better understand. Um, and that we are really grateful for what it is providing to us. And it, 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 these kinds of experiences that we were having in a collaborative model that really changed the way, I mean, it didn't change necessarily the way we were doing the shovel test, but it changed the way we were thinking about them. And so eventually what uh, we ended up doing was taking all of what we had learned in the collaborative model and incorporating that into our technical reports. So we now have a new section in our methods section. So we go through, you know, we dig 50 centimeter by 50 centimeter. We screen through a quarter, like however many inch mesh we dig till, you know, sterile subs or whatever the, the, the methods are. But I feel that it's absolutely as important to include in those methods the importance of the ceremony, um, making the offerings, making sure that if we are taking something, we put something back and that, you know, and it's not, I've heard this from many Mi'kmaq um, community members that that means a lot to them uh, to take that time to do that. That brings a lot of comfort to them and allows us to work together much, much better. So we have, um, so we've completely rewritten our method section in our technical reports because I feel that that what we are doing is as important as record, like as recording the photo, like the photographs that we're taking, um, doing the profile drawings, like it all has to be, it, it, if it's collaborative, if we truly want to do this in a collaborative way, then we have to, we have to respect from the communities as well. And so, so you said that there's not a whole lot of like a uh, difference like between the end results versus like how we do practically. I mean, you did mention stuff like the big numbers and uh, suggested things like changing tested intervals and stuff like that. So we're on like practical aspects of the work that 
normally do a CRI that did change resolve or that are going to change kind of down the road? Yes. So when we are working um, under a provincial permit, um, we have determined our testing intervals in the permit application. Uh, and if we need to make a change to that somehow, like, you know, I mean, uh, this is how I feel and I'm not trying to be critical. I understand that there are all kinds of, I, everybody has a job to do and everybody's doing it the best that they can. But sometimes I feel under the, under the permitting system that we currently have, the archaeology and the methodology is dictated by the permit, by the permit application and not guided by the archaeology itself. It's not being guided by the landscape. It's, it's not being guided by your experience in the field, which might change as you're, as you're generating data and better understanding as you're moving through. So uh, in the collaborative model, there was a lot of trust built into it. So we had the ability, so the Mi'kmaq had determined the testing strategy in the interval. But as I said earlier, there was flexibility built into that. So if we got to an area that we said, oh, you know what, this looks like maybe it needs a little bit of a tighter interval, we had the, the ability to do that on the fly. All we needed to do was make a phone call and say, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And we didn't have to go through any paperwork. We didn't have to, you know, uh, make a permit amendment. We could carry on with some confidence um, and that, that was built on, there was a lot of trust built into this model, but again, I feel like it worked really, really well. All like the, the incredible amount of development and the different clients that I understand why there is a need to have some control over that and keep that all straight, but I'm not sure that it promotes good archaeology. Like I think there's a better, I know there's a better model because we've worked now for five years within a model and one of the points I made this morning was that it is a, it's still CRM work. We are still doing a CRM project. That's what I do. It's still CRM work, but the model is different. The framework within which we're working is slightly different and it allows, I believe, for better archaeology. And it must also be building capacity within indigenous communities to do their own cultural research management work, which I imagine is the, the kind of long-term goal of much of this. There it, uh, Hundred percent. And the more we worked this year, I will have almost a full. I will have a ninety percent Mi'kmaq group, wow. which is, you know, that like we we've never been there before. Yep. Um, but that again, I believe, is based on the encouragement and the support and just making those opportunities available. And a lot of that came from that collaborative program. There was one more thing that I mentioned in my talk, which was we were, we were, we had to test for a water line down at Kedge Beach. Uh, and we knew there were registered sites in the area. And um, it's right across, like it's right directly across Kedge and Kujik Lake from the Petroglyph site. And so we, we, used to, we were shovel testing. We had to, uh, they wanted to put in a water line. Uh, we started to find, Mi'kmaq ancestral belongings in a disturbed context. So we knew, you know, we knew we were onto something. And then we, we decided based on that collaborative approach of discussing with both Parks Canada and the Mi'kmaq Nation how they wanted to proceed. They decided, we're like, let's trench. Let's trench the whole water line and see what we find. Okay. And um, 
it was it was fantastic. But as that was happening, we had members of Acadia First Nation and Bear River First Nation come down to the to the site where we were working and perform ceremony. And again, not something that typically happens on a CRM project when the client is breathing down the back of your neck and wanted you to get it done yesterday. Uh, so there's not time, there isn't time for that. There is, but it's not a priority and it's not of any value to the clients. And that's what I, I'm trying to change. So they came down and they started drumming and they were going to sing, they were singing the honor song and we were standing at the edge of the beach and they were, they had the hand drum and I could, you could hear the, the sound of the drum go across Kejinkujik Lake. You know how water makes it. Yeah. it. The sound of that beating drum went across the lake and hit these low hills that border the end of the lake, bounced off them and came rushing back up the beach where we were standing. Well, so much so that I could feel it in my chest, like the, the beat of the drum in my chest. And at that moment, it changed my entire understanding of the landscape in which I was working. I... Just, I was like, oh my goodness, we're in a basin. We are in a basin in which sound is amplified. And that sound is an important part. Like that, that natural phenomenon is an important part of the landscape in which these people would have been living. I'm trying to, you know, recover their, their belongings and understand their lives. That just understanding that changed everything about how I was working. Again, it, it didn't change the methods. We were still trenching and doing everything we would have done, but it changed my understanding of this place that I was working in. So all of a sudden I was aware of all of the, the waterfowl that were all around, like all of the sounds, the wind and everything. It was, it, but I, I, came there through ceremony and the ceremony would not have been there had it not been for a collaborative program in which that ceremony was valued as a, as a, as a priority component of the archeological project. But it was through that ceremony that, you know, and I, I can only speak from my experiences and I'm sure every one of us would have had a different experience there. But for me, um, this kind of a model where, and it's not that we were, it's not that we weren't, we had deadlines. Uh, there were contractors coming in behind us. We had budget constraints. We had, we had crew meltdowns. We had all of the things. But yet the framework was just different enough to make it an entirely different experience for every single person who worked those projects over the last five years. And I'm hoping that this model will be adopted by Parks Canada across the country. And I'm, I, we just um, got a contract with Cape Breton Highlands National Park to do a collaborative archeology span program. So it's, it's, it is really exciting and it, it, it's really inspiring for me. It makes me feel like, you know, because uh, I'm very concerned about CRM just becoming a machine that is unmanageable. That and really like that that speed divorces the human component from the rest of the landscape, which is so 
counterintuitive to many ways. That's yeah, that's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah. Okay. Yes, thank you. And now, also, Sarah, congratulations on um, the wildly successful CA so far. This has been—it's super well attended. It appears to be anyway. This is an amazing conference. Yeah. yeah, I think we have about three hundred participants. Yeah, many of um, have never attended a CA before. We have a lot of community members here yep. who yes. are voicing their. Uh, they're asking their questions and voicing their concerns, and we need to hear these. We need to hear these voices. And so it's, yeah, it's been incredible. Yeah. Now, I'm going to take a completely left turn. I'm going to ask you for a meal suggestion. Somebody who has not visited Sydney since I was a child, would you recommend to visit eating for dinner? In Sydney? Yeah. Glowing <laughs> <laughs> review there. <laughs> you don't think yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can tell you a few places that you might, if you want a Sydney experience, if you would like to come to a place and experience it, uh, there so Sarah, is. Sarah just, just heard her Sydney municipal contracts dwindling. You can find places. It's really selecting among them. Yeah. Uh, there's the Governor's Pub. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, is that the one that you mentioned yeah. with live music? Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. I think it's right downtown on the waterfront. There is, um, well, there's the obligatory old triangle. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> one third covered. Yes. Uh, and then I'm pretty sure. You said one thirtieth. I'm pretty sure there's the Tim's. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lovely to see you as always, and uh, we'll catch up later this weekend. Yes, we will. Excellent. Thanks so much. Sarah. I love the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. You. Thanks, Sarah. We are back with some New Brunswick Archaeology podcast, and I'm actually wearing uh, a set of earbud monitors. He looks nice. Uh, so, yes. yeah, these are these are in ear monitors by the iFi Man company. Yeah, I highly recommend them. Yeah, and uh, what the listener doesn't know is that uh, Gabe and I have just shared earwigs. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, we apologize for the audio quality of the uh, previous recordings. Um, uh, I think I was almost inaudible, but I think we've pointed the microphone in the right direction that all of the interviewees were audible. Um, and we also think we got um, some pretty great tape of this um, West Virginia, uh, almost heaven, West Virginia. Uh, uh, country roads and recorded in the background here at number two. Yeah, and so you'll notice in Denver Tribute Hour here today. It is, yeah. So, uh, so you'll notice that, um, that we have a little bit of a little bit more background noise uh, in this one um, to give you a sense of uh, of the setting that we're in, uh, the liveliness of the uh, the East Coast uh, setting, and and uh, we're now going to go and we're going to talk about uh, a West Coast setting, uh, but a, a West Coast setting. On uh, uh, on the isthmus of of, of Italy, uh, and uh, uh, so we're talking about the east coast of the Mediterranean in some ways. Um, is, is that correct? I don't know. You, you're, uh, we're asking Arthur. We're talking about Romans. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I missed the entire conversation with what the premise of this is. So uh, no, no, but you're to inform you that those Romans are in the east of Italy. Oh dear. Oh, okay. yeah. well, so even the northeast. The yeah. That's even but better. Perfect. That's even better. Yeah. yeah. Back to the Northeast. Yeah. yeah. Arthur works in New England and Albany. 
Yep, it's um, it's uh, he's essentially a full Billy Bragg album wrapped up in an archaeologist package, and <laughs> so. Uh, but what, what we're wondering, right? We just um, we think it's interesting that, or I think it's interesting anyway. That a, a lot of but we very rarely get more. They do seem they can be really for yeah, the uh, the uh, cover is just a faded breath. But we're here, it's a great, great world map. Yeah, we're one of these remnants from northeastern England got to northeastern North America. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we still really get uh, so uh, in all your degrees are from Durham in the UK, and then uh, you came home, which was uh, Portland, Maine, yep. and you now work. Uh, the the listener can't hear this, but someone just dropped a whole Roman sword in the background. What? And that uh, was very loud when you hear you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ken's hi fi man in your honor. It's just shaking his brain now. <laughs> and, uh, but what is the, I'm just curious about the camera. You, you yeah, work on something that's protostoric on Roman archaeology, and now you work on the protostoric here. I, it, it was an interesting and frankly lucky transition, but um, uh, my graduate work was really looking at how communities in, in Northern Europe, and, and specifically what's now the North. Northeast of England, the Scottish borders were kind of responding to the uh, encroachment of the Roman Empire. And the, I think the, for me, kind of the most interesting thing about that work, and I get to look back on it sort of a decade later, um, is the fairly complex web of decision making that we see um, that communities have access to new material that we can see in the archaeological record, presumably also new ideas, styles, whatever else tangibles the communities have access to new material culture and they're making a pretty complex series of decisions about what they're picking up and you were working on roman ceramics um i did a lot of work ceramics because that was a major sort of category of, of data but other information as well but um i mean in, in kind of a short example one of the things that i thought was interesting is that uh when people were uh, exposed to roman networks of trade they acquired cooking pots that were uh it is sort of as close as the Roman versions that were sort of as close as possible to the cooking pots they've been using for thousands of years. Continuity. Yeah. But a real focus was wine drinking. So we see uh, not much of a change in tableware. We see a change in cookware, but with uh, sort of equivalent coming in through Roman trade networks. Um, but then we see a real focus on at, you know, Amphora of wine, uh, flagons to serve wine on the table, uh, and vessels to drink wine out of. So this sort of, um, and I, I think, thinking of historical archaeology, this may be comparable to sort of the spread of, of variations of the tea ritual, right, in historic archaeology. So uh, wine consumption became a big focus, but uh, the food that was eaten alongside that didn't seem to change much, right? And I think that's been interesting to look at, uh, or, or that's been maybe kind of an inspiration or something, but um, in approaching the the, the more recent um, and a really important proto-historic period around here that, that's also like this understanding of the, the brutal colonialism that shaped the world we're a part of, but that's what gives it this really global importance. Um, but understanding the potential for like really complex decision-making and social signaling around adopting or not adopting new technologies. And we're often presented a narrative that's, that's just so one-sided, so monolithic, you know, one technology kind of swamps another technology. Um, and I, I think there's room for archaeology showing us a lot of nuance in that. You know, um, people, I, I'm not sure. It's the SHA paper I gave years ago that I should do something with, but I, I'm not sure that the narrative that uh, 
indigenous people here were sort of seeking novelty from European goods is really good. I mean, people were um, seemingly focusing on goods that already had cultural contacts to them and then using those. But that's very active decision making. Um, yeah, so it's you know, like copper kettles would maybe be an example. Copper, yeah, people yeah, have been yeah. making things out of copper from Nova Scotia for yeah. thousands of years. Making vessels. Yeah. So yeah. copper kettles, a new source of copper. This already has cultural context. Yeah. Um, that's why it's important. It's not important because it's shiny. It's not important to new because it's new. Those are um, pretty ethnocentric narratives that are are dominant. Uh, right. Yeah. And we see you know, tobacco pipes, beads, whatever else it might be. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And, uh, we're, we're, uh, our producer uh, is drifting the microphone towards the data field. Yeah. I was just thinking that early, dur early dur during the colonial project, particularly in, in southern New England, that, that Europeans also adopted indigenous ways of doing things. And that's also not like how quickly they adopted the farm, but also the, the, the production of an album and how important that became in, yeah. Among, yeah. in colonial economy. Yeah. To lubricate and facilitate trade with it, with indigenous bodies were very perfect, yeah. and that gets lost. That it wasn't just; it's also not one sided. It's not a unidirectional thing, but rather there's a lot of exchange there, and that seems to get lost in a lot of the a lot of the narratives that we, we have as well. I think that's so important. The the, the the early 17th century and the late 16th, and we should mention but um, there is a period of interaction. Like before, it, where the balance of power is very different than the story we're told about our country, and, the, and there's not enough focus on that period, right? Um, because the narratives that were fed a lot of the time are narratives of inevitability, and that's a way of avoiding um, responsibility, avoiding yeah. culpability. Absolutely, right. yeah. absolutely. Um, well, there's sort of that uh, that wolf line about like collisions of histories, right? Yeah, there's yeah. there's all sorts of people that have all sorts of historical context for how they're interpreting these interactions. So you know, with Wampum, I think Kevin Bright talking about the source and mother of the fur trade, right? That this indigenous economy is mediating basically this this uh, interaction that involves fur and fish and all sorts of other things. But yeah, it's really interesting. I think that was in plain and work on one of the sites that yeah, it's like you think about Champlain. Yeah. <laughs> is there a reason? Yeah, I mean, I, I work at the University of New England. We have what I think is a really important archaeological site, Green Bias, on our campus, but it's a place that Champlain visited and describes villages, sort of thing. Um, but I think there are these these moments, like these particularly notable when you read Champlain's works and think about the experience that he had. Um, his description of this, like, it's a historical account that is deserving of some critique and some careful reading, uh, particularly careful comparison with the archaeology that tells us more about the indigenous stories. Um, but Champlain is in somebody else's world, and he knows it. Uh, and that's really clear from it. I mean, he survived by the grace of the past. He's still, and, and so it's a very different power dynamic than even 15 years later. Uh, and like, those are really important moments to look at. But they're also, uh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of over down east, but they're stratigraphic needles in stratigraphic haystacks. Sure. That's, that's certainly a challenge. Uh, but those fragments, you know, that, that bead that's indicative of presence or yeah. contact, you know, those can be really important. Um, and, and I, yeah, again, I am a bit biased, but I think this is really important work for understanding the, um, colonial foundations of the world that we all operate in today in, in, in more ways than you could ever really know. Or... Yeah, I think so too. 
I would contribute to this, but I am so thrown off by these monitors that like I'm having trouble following the conversation. Ken is hearing through time right now. They, uh, <laughs> it's quite a situation to find yourself in. Yeah. Well, Ken is actually more comfortable in a world in which he can only hear himself talking. Since we've entered a world with where time is without form or substance. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. This is this is like it's obviously not my area. It's something I think about a lot because it's like well, the culture contact is in a way because you're always thinking about Palaeolithians who are who are living across essentially Clovis in some yeah, way, is living across the entire continent and interacting. We've been thinking a lot about these divides because my background is in the proto-historic, but I'm about to give a paper that's effectively and almost accidentally on the archaic woodland transition, which is getting really interesting. Sure. You've been working on the late paleo stuff, which is incredibly interesting. Which tangentially is it now intersected by no fault of my own with the with the transitional archaic. Oh, right. That's right. Uh, like a transitional archaic point. Yep. Two. 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 Sorry, sorry. Two. 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 We haven't presented one yet, so as far as I know, there's only one. Saturday. Saturday morning is going to be another one. Literally just walked in. Oh, yeah. uh, and so and this is building on the theme that, like, the preoccupation of, of uh, transitional archaic groups of Paleo Indian landscapes. That's right. Yeah. We talked about this uh, 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 in the context of, like, Penfield sites. We had, yeah. Which is a strange coincidence or that there seem to be Paleo Indian sites line <laughs> transitional archaic sites sometimes. Yeah. One of them back to transitions. I don't know how I pre clovis stuff, but like I think one of the interesting things about pre clovis is it makes clovis a thousand percent more interesting. People are already here and then they all do the same thing for a while. That's way more interesting than that showing and doing the same thing. But it's that on top. Like so my my perspective has shifted well not even recently, but like I've this like like sort of tickle in the back of my brain for a while about, you know, the food point period, Clovis, whatever you want to call it, is held up as like this very unique event of a continental scale radiation of some a technology, a related series of technologies, certain. And very often it appears to be presented as unique because lots of people presented or conceptualize it as a radiation of people. But is it unique? Well, it's extremely rapid, isn't it? It's extremely rapid. Yes. But is it unique? In that sense. In, the, in that sense, perhaps. Yeah. And, but also, the, the question is, it's how rapid is it? Sure. And that's interesting. Like, certainly changed in the last 20 years. Yeah. And, and so yeah, there's, there's two camps on There's two who do most of thinking on that. And it's like, it's, you know, Arthur has been talking about, right? Like, if you, you're talking about pre Clovis, whatever that may look like. And that's the problem. Is, and I don't think archaeologists have a, a handle on what may have been there before the food point period. Uh, however, what I, I think most people can agree upon at this point is that, you know, food point technology, one of the most sophisticated limited technologies ever to appear on the planet, is indigenous to the Americas. Right? It didn't come in, in the. In Iran? I can't remember. There's the no, 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 no. Those are, like, those are later. They're from the Arabian Peninsula. They're they're like eight thousand years old, and they are they are completely different technology. They are they are fluted by yes, 
their food from the tip. Um, and it's a, 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 a one-off thing, right? That's fantastic. The listener will appreciate that we just added nuance to this errata that we added. <laughs> there are food points other places, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's tempting to say that, right? Yeah. Um, well, it is. It's still saying, <laughs> of course. But it's like, but that that struck me when that when that first came out. I was like, okay, wow, this is like this is pretty important because like fluid point technology is yeah so 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 unique, right? And presented as such, and like that that findings like oh, see, call that into question if I mind. But like after learning more about that technology, it's like it's very interesting. Yeah. And it, you know, they don't know enough about it to understand exactly what what the context is. Like, why why would people be doing that? Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily in, even remotely the same. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I totally believe that. And and so, you know, because like also the the technology itself is not as sophisticated. Yeah. Right. And it, it's not a fulsome thing. Sorry. So it's it's not a full it's it's so it's not like this very thin, very finely crafted Buddha joint that you have to be an incredible artisan. Uh-huh. Yeah, you have to be remarkably skilled. Not all fluted points are like that. Not everyone in the past was, you know, like but they're mostly pretty nice. What's that? They're mostly pretty nice. Who they pull off? No. Some of them, I don't know. Okay. Um, the Daniel's worked all sorts of places that have more of these than we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but, but it's, I think it's, a, it's like the statistic that you got even the, the best contemporary Flint efforts have a 50% success rate on a Folsom. Uh, well, yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, it'd certainly be higher in the past, but that gives you some sense of what we're talking about. Yeah. And those failure, but you mean failing to flee. Like when you when you yeah, I mean, the, the, the flake dives and you test when when you when you've taken a, a biface down to a most finished point, and you have to do this one well, in some instances one last operation, and to finish it at a fluted point, and to do that, yes, modern flint numbers very often, and even in in. In ancient human history, some people have argued that that failure rate was in the order of, I think, 30 to 30, around 30 percent. Oh, wow. 30 to 40 percent at a quarry. There's something very interesting happens when you move away from quarries, so. We should do more careful. They don't have tons of rock around? Yeah, those failure rates go down. Yeah. And I don't think people get more careful. I you think that the best people are doing it. Well, damn it. So you're looking at the epic quarry. About this with you when yeah. we were up there. Yeah. I think that that, that view into uh, into learning, yeah, and, and sharing of knowledge that's really great. These, these quarries are kind of like training grounds. Like in some yeah. ways, like they're like, like practice areas, and like yeah, yes, yeah. they are. When when you have infinite stone, then then everyone gets an opportunity. Everyone right? gets an opportunity because you have to. This is a fundamental skill. Yeah, right. This is the listener can't see it. Trevor Downs looking nervous because infinite stone is what they called him in. Uh, <laughs> um, but but it, prov- it provides an opportunity for the for the novice snapper. And lots of people, uh, lots of archaeologists have, have have talked about skill and and how to detect that in the archaeological library. But you know there there are occasionally instances where you where you're say including is particularly easy to see it. 
because it is considered to be so challenging, so difficult, where you see you see something happen and you're like, wow. Um, so that's really impressive. And and I think one of the sites that really demonstrates that is a site that I did my master's thesis on in New Hampshire called the Colbert site. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so there are, I believe, it, at least five fluted points that were made there. And we know that because there are at least five separate lithic raw materials that are represented in, in the channel flints, right? But only the channel flints. Why? Because they didn't destroy a single point. Uh -huh. There were there are two tips of, of my faces that were were overshot. They got, basically got cut off. But in my opinion, and not everybody agrees with me, but in my opinion, that didn't destroy that biface. It was still a useful fluid moisture. Sure. Yep, you you could and it happened with Folsom all the time, yeah. where an overshot tip was then resharpened into a sharp tip. That's something. You can do a metaphor to make a whole new type point. You can do Not even. You almost me. It's making surprising surprise that when saying that there's not more evidence for kind of screw ups people are practicing at the quarry. There's tons of evidence up there. You know, there's, 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 there's broken stuff. There's yeah. There's some make. There are some beautiful bifaces that most modern flint mappers would be happy to make uh -huh. that are that it, that were that were broken pretty close to the end. Yeah. Presumably, yeah. Yeah. who knows? They were broken. They, they broke, and then somebody was like, "Oh, that, no, that's no, not that anymore." But yeah. then there's some that are remarkably thick, and they're they're covered in in like flaking errors. We didn't look at the speed. It's like mistake, 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 and then they just got left right there. I think the thing, yeah. the thing where the, the the further along you get the process, the more noticeable are gone. And it's like not to pick on you, but I know you're yeah. that app. No, you know if, if if you handed each of us the same block of chert and the goal is just to, to try taking some flakes and try to start shaping sure. it ours would be pretty similar yeah it would only be further along in the process yeah. that mine would get a little more sensible well, because you, so pigs you end up with broken bifates in the extreme right you just right. can't reduce it more or you broke it but again yeah, if, yeah. if it's a if it's a big piece and we're just trying you know maybe trying to take a flake or trying to test the material sure. you and i are going to look really similar right. and a lot of that's going to be happening at a quarry yeah yeah and i think just i like the token sort of old world archaeologist here, but one of the uh, one of the things that I think is most interesting about um let's see the ice mummy there is that he had, he had a little pressure flaker with him. Right. And when we think about how and I'm going very broad here, but um I think archaeologists sometimes fall into camps of assuming that if in uh societies that use social technology it was either a universal skill or a very specialized skill. And, and I, I think the fact that uh, Otzi there was prepared to resharpen tools he already had, but he didn't have the toolkit to make tools, mm -hmm. is really interesting. Because we, if we think of this as a spec, very individualized spectrum of skills, and in a community, you probably would have had the full range. Yeah, yeah, but as an individual, yeah. you may not. Right. I, I, that's, yeah, I think that's pretty telling. And that's what I think you are seeing in the Blue Point period, too, is that like there's a, a spectrum of skill. You know, there's maybe even a spectrum of interest. Yeah, like people, yeah. people like yeah, right. really like flint mapping. People are like, yeah, you know what? Something I need to know, and I can make, I can do most everything. But like, boy, when it, but the rubber meets the road, and it really comes down to it, and things need to go right. Yeah, better have that person over there. 
And I think if you change my wipers, but it will change my head gasket. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> and I think you can see that. In the I think you can see that even in the archaeological record of area, which I think is really cool. It is cool. Uh, and so that's that's what I think is, is really fun with that. With five lithic raw materials we're at, that's it. So there's I'm just curious. So there's red one sucking shirt. Okay. There's a black there's red one sucking, there's black one sucking, there's gray one. So there's red one sucking. There is a black shirt that may be from Connecticut, is this a sub sex turned on about at um from Milwaukee? From New York. Yeah, it, it might be from the from New York or some New York Olympic. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um perhaps. No, doesn't necessarily seem to be Munsakian. Right. Uh, there's rhyolite and something that was, I think, last in the quartzite that may also be a rhyolite. And I might be spacing on this fifth now. I agree. I feel like this is a question for next year's Easter moments. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah. Um, so it's fantastic. Uh, we went from talking about Romans to like. Paleo-Indian like learning but, communities, but this is but this is a, this is archaeology anthropology, archaeological anthropology. Yeah. Exactly, that is the that point. try to make these try to make these connections to try to understand the, the broad yeah. like the broad sweep of human history, right? Well, that's precisely, it. and that's why I mean maybe maybe I lean on this because it's my own career, <laughs> but that's why studying the proto-historic in one place is relevant to studying the proto-historic in another. That's why those Arabian tip fluted points are relevant. Uh, that, that's why this all comes yeah. together and we get to have conversations like this. Exactly. And what Ken's about to say, listeners, that we're looking at an empty bottle of Colbassier. And so, it doesn't mean we're gone if we're shifting locales to a place that also serves dinner. Exactly. And I'm not really sure at what point you're going to be listening to this in the segment, but uh, we appreciate, uh, uh, thank you, Nathaniel, thank you, Arthur, thank you, Trevor, thank you, Gabe and, uh, and Sarah from a previous interview, and uh, we're going to sign off from Giju, uh, which I think is probably the current pronunciation. And the fact that I can't say pronunciation at this point is probably a good reason to take off these monitors and, uh, in, and participate in this conversation again. And uh, thank you, listener. Talk to you soon.